Hello, everyone, and welcome back to MetaStation. Uh, my name is Sachin Sahil. Uh, I am not the voice that you are used to hearing. I am currently an actor in L.A., and I'm on uh, the show The 100, which people listening to this may or may not know about. Um, I am here today for the most sought-after interview on the planet. People have been clamoring for this interview for, for months and years, ever since The 100 took hold. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to interview the leads of MetaStation themselves, Claire and Aaron. Claire and Aaron, welcome to MetaStation. Thank, Thank you, you so much so for much. having us, Sachin. It's it the, is a pleasure no, to be No, it's here. an honor. It is an honor to finally have you guys on the show. You know how long I've been trying to get you guys on this show? Do you it's understand? Been ages. You know? I know, I know. Oh my gosh. I'm so happy that this I've worked had out. Hate mail. I've had hate mail from fans for months being like, Sachin, why are they not on this show? Why are you not interviewing them? We don't want to hear about you people. We want to hear about them. What's, what, what, what is the life behind these voices? <laughs> and we just, you know, we were so busy. Well, we we're so we're, in demand. Our schedules just kind of got in the way, but we finally worked it out. Yeah, I'm so happy that we could all, you know, move our incredibly important lives and schedules around to like make some time and just like come and like chat with you. So we're honored to be asked. Yes. I, I know the people appreciate it. I know I appreciate it. Um, and this is probably the most exciting moment in my life right now. <laughs> Thank you. That means so uh, much, Chuck. Excellent. Ladies, <laughs> no, but literally after meeting you guys um, and doing the uh, show uh, a bunch of times now, um, it's, it, it's, it's truly an honor to be able to do this for you guys because you guys give some of the best interviews. And you guys care so much about the show and all of us. Uh, this is actually a really fun thing. I think the fans finally get to meet the people behind the questions, behind the smart, intelligent questions that MetaStation has. And I'm all about Claren, guys. Ah, uh, thank you, Sachin. Thank you. And we love you, too. We do love you, and we really appreciate you genuinely um, agreeing to do this with us because it's just, you know, it's fun. And we do, we love you, and we love the show so much. And, uh, but for our second anniversary, we kind of wanted to sort of make it about Claren again for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it because the the people should know the uh, who's asking the questions and why and why the questions are so good and where y'all came from. Because yeah. I want to know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm here. here. Exactly. I'm sitting here. I'm like, who's asking me this question? How can she think of this? Let me know about her life. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. We're ready to tell you anything you want to know. That's right. This is ask us anything. Um, well, I do have tons of questions from the people. You know. Yes. I. I uh, we, we had a couple weeks there where we were all preparing for this, so there are a bunch of questions. But we are going to start start with a question from Selena Wilkin, who you all know, who also is a, a, a very good interviewer and, and friend of the show. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> she put it very succinctly. Number one, what is the Claren origin story? And two, what is the most valuable thing you have, you have learned from each other? Aw. Thank you, Selena. That's such a sweet question. A um, lovely question. So, and a great place to start. Yes. Yeah, so the Claire and origin story. Um, Claire, do you want to do you want to tell it? Um, well, we can we can tag team it. So um, so we went to college together. That's like the very very short version of the story. I was I mean you're older than Aaron. Um, no 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 wait 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 long version of the story with <laughs> All <right>. college. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, so, uh, so I'm a year older than Erin and so she, um, she came when I was, a when I was a sophomore and I actually, so I was friends with her husband first. I was friends with, with him before either of us had met Erin. Um, 
And I was, so I was directing a play my sophomore year that happened to have, there was like a big cluster of actors who were all in it, who happened to be kind of in it, like in Aaron's freshman dorm and in her, her friend group. And so I kind of like, I think I met you first through them, right? Like yeah. I met you mm-hmm. with like, like I would come over after rehearsal to you guys' dorm section with like Chris and Jared and Alicia and everybody. And, um, and so Aaron was not in the show, but she was friends with this group of people. Her roommate was in the show. Um, so we were kind of like orbiting around each other, sort of like on the margins of this big, like theater literature nerd social group. And I just remember thinking like, this chick is like really, really cool. I think the first time I met you, <laughs> you were wearing that, um, that like, khaki olive green like flight suit jumpsuit oh yeah you had the like mechanics uniform jumpsuit and I was just like yeah it was so dope yeah it was literally I got it you remember what she was wearing I do yeah I remember what she was wearing this is the best this is the best meat cute I've ever heard Yeah, I got it. It was like a military surplus jumpsuit thing that I used to wear and I was um so yeah so that was like November, December of, of that year, right? Of your freshman year, yeah. The year mm-hmm. 2000 was the year. Yes, um, year 2000. <laughs> and, and the show you were directing, that was the W.H. Auden show, right? It was... Yeah, yeah. It was uh, an adaptation of a, a cycle, a poet poetry cycle called For the Time Being, which is um, the poet W.H. Auden wrote this kind of oratorio that adapts the story of the birth of Jesus and kind of sets it in World War II. So it's kind of about like um, post-war oh. Europe and colonialism and things like that. And um, and I had read it a couple years before I directed it and just was always like, would love to like put it on the stage. So we did it, I think in December, like before Christmas break as like a holiday show. Yeah. So first of all, Claire has always really cool. been crazy brilliant and she's an amazing playwright. Um, I know she wrote a book. She wrote a book. She wrote a book. Yes. And Which everyone has to read. We're going to plug that later. Yes. Um, and I, so I think you, that was happening and I was only kind of around a little bit during that time because that was when I was, I was still on the swim team. Yeah. yeah. Like I was just training constantly. Um, and then in the spring you moved into our dorm, right? You were living on our floor. I did. And so, so then like, so then you were living on the floor and then my swim season ended in like February or something like that. Um, and then, so, like, I'd known you, like, somewhat from, because all of my friends were theater kids. Like, I wasn't in the theater, but all my friends were theater people. And it's kind of, like, my whole life, like, I've awesome. always been friends with, you know, yeah, I'm, like, theater adjacent my whole life. Um, yeah. And uh, so then, so I went I went to, like, the theater parties, like, the cast parties for all the shows. Um, so we, like, hung out there. And then, do you like, you were hanging out in the, in the, um uh, like common room in, um, the dorm, I think. And then we just, it just kind of went from there. Like, I think we like hung out a lot that year and like, just really instantly adored each other, obviously. Um, yeah. Like sometimes you just know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just know, we just like clicked. And then I think, um, after that, um, you know, it's funny because like, I think after that year, we didn't really actually have that much overlap in our friend groups like that. You kind of had like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the friend group that you were living with off campus um, and a house called the Labyrinth, which is an awesome name for a house. Um, yeah. And, you know, Whoa, I, I that's had, amazing. <laughs> and I had like a kind of separate friend group. So like we actually weren't it's like 
we weren't we we weren't like socially hanging out together all the time, but like I remember we always just we always just made time for each other. Like we had we always had mm-hmm. weekly coffee dates. And, like, we always, over summers, we kept in touch over email. And, like, after you graduated, we were always emailing and, and talking. And so... Um, I was in her wedding. Yeah, she was in my wedding. She was one of my bridesmaids. I got married oh. in Vegas, uh, which I had yes. to recommend to everyone. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> hey, really, really underrated. Vegas is really underrated as a wedding spot. I know it gets a lot of flack, but that should be done. How much fun would that be? It was oh so my God, it was fun. so much fun. And I was like, so, I mean, it's, okay, and I'm also, like, I am not, I'm not the kind of person who enjoys anything related, like, any part of the wedding planning process. Like, I, I'm not a party planner. I don't, like, particularly, <laughs> I'm not, like, into, like, flower arrangements. I just, like, don't, it's not, it's not what I'm about. So, like, the fantastic thing about getting married in Vegas is that we just decided which hotel we wanted to get married in, which is the Paris, and then we called them up yep. and we're like, can we get married on this day with this package? And they're like, sure. And then that's all we had to do for like a year until they called us back and what, you know, asked like what color flowers we wanted. It was perfect. Um, (laughs) so yes. And also if you ever have the opportunity to walk through a casino floor wearing a a wedding dress, I would recommend it because (laughs) you will get spontaneous applause, which is really fun. You know what? I was wondering if I should, and now I'm definitely going to. Yes. We cannot recommend it too highly. Yes. No, it's great. Got it. What kind of shoes should I wear? Um, I mean, whatever, you know, like whatever you're comfortable in, I think. (laughs) Got it. I was going to say tennis shoes. Like I was like, some wedding tennis shoes. And then that made me think of, do you guys remember, uh, uh, what was that Steve Martin movie, wedding movie? Um, uh, two, three weddings at a uh, funeral, is that Father it? Father of the Bride. Father of the Bride. Father of the Bride. And he, he, Father owned, of the bride. he owned a Classic. tennis shoe factory and he like made his oh, special yeah, wedding Oh yeah, she had like shoes. the sparkly wedding sneakers. Oh, that was so cute. Yeah. Anyway, that's an aside. So, um, so that's the Clarin, <laughs> <laughs> that's the Clarin origin story. And then, you know, so we were, we were best friends for like a lot for, I mean, for since the year 2000 uh, or 2001, I guess. So like for 15 years. And then, um, so I started watching the hundred first and I got super, super into it. And I got like, I was involved in the fandom and stuff. And then, um, and Claire was finishing, this was like right when Claire was finishing her novel. So I was like not yeah. allowed to binge any new shows until I sent my draft in because I was like, otherwise I will never get this done. <laughs> yeah. So this was like, tw- yeah, this was June of this would have been 2015, right? I think 2015. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cause it was like right after season two ended and I was like, okay, you know, I kept telling her, you have to watch the show the hundred. It's like so awesome. You're going to love it. It's like super smart sci-fi. It's got all these badass women. Like everything you love is in this TV show. And she's like, okay, okay, okay. Um, and then, so she started watching it and she was like, she's just like emailing me all of her reactions, which was delightful. It was like the best thing. I still go back and I reread that email thread sometimes. Cause it was just like wonderful. <laughs> oh, um, the beginning of it all. Someday we should release those chat transcripts. Yeah. Exactly. Like, beginning of it all. Like here, here are Claire's unfiltered reactions to everything that yeah. happened in seasons one and two. Um, it was just a lot of like, oh my, oh my God. God. Oh my God. Oh my God. What's so- happening? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> It was amazing. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to that release was, them. because it's like also, Watergate. Yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> in slow motion, you can watch her fall in love. Well, no, in, in in like, first of all, you can see how instantaneously she fell in love with Abby. Uh, oh, yeah. As she should. Okay. And yeah, then, I, well, mom, I, I, I mom's her my weakness. Yeah. 
And then Abby is my weakness too, so I get that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Relatable. We can yeah. all relate to that. And then you can watch <laughs> how slowly she falls in love with Kane, which is hilarious. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that I one hated that motherfucker until like the middle of season one, and I was like, "Well, okay, fine. Now I love you." <laughs> <laughs> um, middle of season one, it took me to season three. Well, oh, I mean, I well, I guess that I, makes sense. Like Jackson's yeah. so protective of Abby. Yeah, I mean, he he was getting good, and then he goes and shot glasses her, yeah. and that took me. A- yeah, that's there's a lot of the, it's the the progress is not linear. It's yes. sort of one yeah. step forward, yeah. three steps back. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean. I love- and like season, the first half of season two is rough on Kane because like he's great at the end of season one, and then the beginning of season two, first he like comes in and punishes Bellamy, for, like totally misreads the Bellamy and Murphy situation, which I was mad at him for, and then he shocklashes Abby, and yeah. you're just like, dude. Um, but I was like, I was rooting for his you, Kane. his his uh, his main problem is that uh, well, what it was was that when he's put in a position of power, he feels like he has to assert that power in order to make sure people understand who's, who's leading them so that they can mm-hmm. listen to him and lead them later. He's not thinking about um, the actual ramifications of it. He's just saying, okay, I have to have a leader moment here so yeah. when things get really important later on, they have to listen to me because they know that it's important. Which but, I yeah. kind of get, but at the yeah. same time, do it a different way. Don't shock flash my Abby, yeah, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when she was right. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Even when she's wrong, don't shock laugh. True. Her. But especially, especially when she's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Probably best not to shock lash at all. But. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, this is the hundred. You're going to get shock Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. um, so, yeah. So, so then she finished her book and I got her to watch. And uh, I think it was towards when you were towards finishing up season two. I was like, okay. <laughs> When you're done with the seasons, I don't want anything to be spoiled. I will introduce yep. you to the fandom. And at this point, Claire, oh my didn't, God. Claire didn't know that I had been in, in fandom. Like she didn't know that I, <laughs> that I was doing any of this stuff. So she's like, what? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh like, my God. You have a Tumblr? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my oh my God. God. Yeah. Um, I and- love the full release of information too. That's brilliant. And yeah. now you're this and now you're gonna get this no totally it was like this whole like slow roll of like like releasing like little bits of time to like lure me in yep and then (laughs) and she took to it like a fish to water as i knew she would um and has since like very swiftly conquered uh (laughs) the cabbie fandom to become their benevolent dictator um, which to, I enjoy. to become the leader of the what? The cabbie patties. The cabbie yes. patties. The cabbie patties. Right. Yeah. Queen well, of the and so then, patties. and then season three we watched. We watched together, and we would like call each other after every single episode, and like yell for like four hours about like, oh my god, what's going to happen, and like like yelling about like like what's going on with Pike, and what's going to go on with Lexa, and how's this gratitude going to work, and oh my god, and what's happening, and um you know what's going with Allie, and um and we would have these like incredibly lengthy conversations. And they were usually in the evening. And so my relationship with Aaron's husband over that time became a lot of him yelling in the background that I had to let her go because it was like <laughs> one o'clock in the morning and he wanted to sleep. Um, so uh, so he was actually the one who was like, he's like, I feel like you guys should start a podcast. And we were kind of like, what? And he's like, look, he's like, you're having this like really smart conversations and like you obviously are really really like you're thinking about a lot of different things related to the show and he's like maybe other people might want to like you know join in and so we kind of were like all right so we'll do this for like you know we we did we started over the break between 
the first and second half of season three. And so we were like, yeah, well, like, we like learning new technical skills. We like went out and like did some research and bought microphones and headphones and things like that and taught ourselves very, very basic sound editing. And we're kind of yeah. like, all right, so this is, we're doing this for like her 10 nerdiest friends and my 10 nerdiest friends. And like, you know, that's as far as it'll get ever go. And like, if 50 people listen, we'll be like, that's amazing. You know? Yeah, um, totally. And then it kind of just like blew up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but when you have, when you have, I think the greatest thing about content now is that while there is so much out there, if you have a quality content or people that actually are legitimately thinking properly, um, asking the right questions, things will, people are going to want to listen to it. It's just when people are doing it in a way that's just like, oh my God, this and this and this, and not actually having like intelligent discussion about it, which I think this show completely breeds between people. You can't help but talk about it. Mm -hmm. It makes people want to hear what you're saying. You know, and I think that's why it blew up. I don't think it blew up. Any, I don't think it was a surprise. I think knowing you guys now um, and the conversations that you have, directing a play, you know, writing a book, you got, you know, you know, you guys know about theater. You know stuff about that. People are going to want to gravitate towards what you're saying. Aw, thank you, Sachin. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like one of the things I think is really cool about this this fandom is that I think, you know, given that like, you know, in in terms of like overall magnitude of like size of audience you know like the hundred is like it's a smaller fandom it's a smaller audience it's a smaller show um but man like the depth of quality of content we have of like podcasts and writers and journalists who cover it feels like really remarkable like there's so many different really fantastic voices out there kind of adding to the conversation and everyone kind of knows everybody like everybody reads selena's articles and all that kind of stuff and um and so i think that's really cool too that we feel like you know, we have this like really incredibly diverse range of like different, like, and almost all women, which I think is amazing, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of commenting on the show and thinking about the show in all these different ways, you know? So, uh, yeah. So I think that's, that's pretty neat. And we're just excited to be like a piece of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with this show, what I think is beautiful about it and, uh, just going to these conventions overseas and stuff is that it's, it's a worldwide show. I mean, while yeah. people, people, People are, you know, thinking about uh, it in America specifically because that's the way people think about TV usually when it when it airs on, on a network and TV. Mm-hmm. But because of Netflix and because of uh, iTunes and everything all over the world, I can't believe how big it is in places like Paris or New Zealand or yeah. Australia. Yeah. Or like we go to these things and it's insane the reaction to it. So it's really – I think it's it, – it, it's, um, I think it's even better the fact that it's so – worldwide because the fandom you have fandom talking in french you have fandom talking in mm-hmm. brazilian you have mm-hmm. fandom talking in everything you know it's, it's, yeah. it's in brazil i mean and 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 um it, that's a really cool thing to see because not only do you have a fandom discussing the show you have a fandom in completely different locations uh talking to each other in different yeah. languages yeah. and you have all these friends that meet each other because of it like that's yeah, yes. that's, yeah it's really special and then you guys look at like such a diversity of perspectives you know it's not just yes. sort of like one the perspective of one nationality or one group or whatever it's like very you get such a huge range of people and experiences coming to the show and i think that makes the like the discussion really rich you know yeah absolutely oh well that's i we so far we've learned that you you directed a play we all know that you wrote a book you had lived in a place called the labyrinth i mean that was just question (laughs) one yep I'm, I'm, I'm excited. This is an exciting. <laughs> and that so was just question number one. <laughs> that was just question number one. Thank you, Selena. That's what you do, Selena. Congratulations. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, 
Question number two comes from Isla at Blue Shirt Bell. Congratulations on two years first, everyone. I love listening to your podcast. I'm constantly amazed by the team that, that keeps it running. And, of course, your lovely selves. My question is, what are some of your favorite headcanons about life on the arc? Thank you. Oh, man. Um, I'm going to let Claire take point on this one. Yeah, and I'll just I'll just do a couple. Like, I could talk about this for, like, a million hours, but um, but I won't. Um, I, uh, so I have, I, you know, in, in the cabbie fandom, there's always something that's, like, a constant sort of fruitful source of speculation is, you know, trying to suss out, like, you know, before the period in which the, sh- the show starts, um, you know, what were all these people's sort of relationships with each other? So I, I've always sort of, um, it felt very much to me like Abby and Jaha would probably have kind of grown up together in kind of the same social uh, kind of like on the upper end of this kind of social strata. 100%. Uh, and and yeah. that Kane probably came from like a scrappier, more working class family where maybe like serving in the guards was kind of his way out of that. Um, yep. I've, I've okay. wondered a lot and I would love to get Ian on the show just to ask him because he seems like an actor who thinks about these things about who Kane's father was, what he was like. Um, but uh, Vera was one of my like favorite you know, characters who I feel like I would have loved to have seen more from. And, like Vera came to serve to see earth. But, um, <laughs> but I loved, um, but so, so to me, it felt like that made me, I thought a lot about as we meet the adult characters um, throughout the show, you know, like not just Kane and Abby and Jaha, but like Pike and Diana Sidney um, kind of who, who behaves and moves through the world. Like they would have come from that more kind of elite um, strata where you sort of are used to people um, like you're used to being able to get your way. You kind of know how to navigate the system versus the ones who kind of like claw their way up. Um, and I, I really like to think about, um, you know, I, and I would love to ask Ian this too, just thoughts on um, Pike and Kane's friendship. Mike Beach, when he was on this show, talked about that a little bit that they had kind of worked out between themselves that like they were, would have been like best friends on the arc, like super close friends. Um, yeah, so- they definitely, they definitely talked about it a lot. I think what was great about Ian and Mike is both of those guys like to, uh, before a scene, you know, discuss what's going on. Do you know, sometimes to yeah. a, to a, not an angry, but like a heated argument between you, you almost do it in character. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a so cool attached. thing that Mike Beach brought to the show too, that he's such a, um, he thinks about every aspect of everything. He adds levity yeah. to everything because he has these discussions. So right before you walk into a scene, you've discussed why you feel this way. Your other character discusses why they feel that way. You both disagree and then action. Nice. Exactly. And then yeah. you've got all this kind of heat all built up. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, so I, so I, I feel like, um, there's just, yeah, there's so much I would love to kind of mine there. And then just kind of in general, I think who was, I had a really long conversation with somebody, I can't remember who it was. So I'm going to guess it was our friend, Sarah, because it sounds like the kind of thing I would talk about with Sarah, where we've got into it about like unpacking, like all of our thoughts on how we thought the educational system worked on the arc like besides earth skills which is the only one that we kind of know by name like what other classes do they take how are they grouped is it sort of station by station would everyone have kind of known each other how many kids total are on an arc that only has kind of a couple thousand people so I always sort of felt like it seemed probable that 
most everybody of a similar kind of generational cohort would have known each other like through school, if nothing else. And so everyone's maybe not super well, especially because of like all the kind of class stuff, but that like everyone had sort of, everyone's paths have crossed at some point. Like at some point, you know, Bellamy, you know, sprained his ankle and had to go in to, you know, the doctor and Abby fixed it for him, you know, or, um, you know, like things like that. And so just sort of thinking about like the ways that all the characters might have intersected before they connected with each other. So I think think about a lot. Um, And uh, yeah, so those are just kind of some of my thoughts. So what do you think that, so what do you think that the schooling was like? I mean, personally, um, and don't quote me on this. uh, This is just the way that I thought about it. I mean, if you mentioned doctors, for example, I always thought that Jackson Abbey would know everybody because we've all seen them for every reason. You know, there's not too Mm -hmm. many doctors, so we know everybody. In terms of the schooling system, I always viewed it like – have you ever read the book The Giver? Yeah, a long time Mm -hmm. ago, yeah. So you know when you – each each schooling system comes up through the ranks and then at the end – you together, and then at the end when you graduate, you are basically chosen a job to have. And I don't know if they're – yeah, and I, I don't know if you're necessarily chosen to have a job specifically, but like you're definitely more uh, suited for certain things. And then they say, "Hey, you're suited for this. You should do this," because they yeah. watch you through all those like basic classes that everybody does and says, "Oh my God, you have an affinity for this, or this, or this, or this," and then right. you get placed there. You know, um, that was just, always that was always how I saw it too. Like less like. Um, less like an educational system that was about the, you know, the value of knowledge and more about like preparing like a vocational school, like preparing people to do jobs. So there are like, there are basic things that you're taught like earth skills of which the main value of teaching them is that you have to kind of retain that, um, communal knowledge for that point a hundred something years from now when somebody will need to still know that, you know, like they're not teaching the kids earth skills skills because they specifically, you know, Jasper Jordan is going to need to know how to build a fire. They're teaching the kids earth skills so that then there will be a bunch of people who know earth skills so that when the previous generation dies off, they can teach that, like all that kind of stuff. So I I felt like there's sort of one kind of category of classes of which that's the main one. And there might've been more that are about um, the knowledge that our future generations will need to resettle the ground and kind of keeping, you know, keeping the flame burning of the human race. You know, we, we know that, we know that the, the Blakes no obtained Greek mythology <laughs> knowledge somehow, you know, um, and then everything else probably is like, as soon as possible, like, how do we make you useful? Um, yeah. and, and I imagine not a lot of, um, choice or not a lot of like, I feel like I want to be this, you know, yeah, like, there would have been yeah, no space for exactly. Clark to have a creative artist job. She would have been, you know, I mean, maybe just sent to medical with her mom, you know? Um, yeah. so, you know, so a kind of utilitarian, of, go ahead. That, that kind of made me think of actually a uh, headcanon for Pike, um, which is that he wanted to be a guard, but he became the earth skills teacher because he was the best at it. And they were like, we need you to do that instead. Mm. Yep. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Think, and then really he had point. that military uh, leader within him. Yeah. So he gets to the ground and he's like, you know, like this is, this is what I was born for both in terms of like his earth skills. And then also his, he's sort of feeling like I'm a leader, I'm a fighter, you know, like he can kind of live out yep, the dream absolutely. that he had to push down. Mm. 
I think you made a really good point about choice, uh, Claire, that you wouldn't have it because you yeah. don't, nobody can be really be, uh, you, if you have that, um, if you're in such a confined space with low supplies and you have people that need to do specific jobs and you're good at something, but you want to do something else, we need you to be what you're good at. We yeah, need yeah. you to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. If you're a, if, if, you know, if Jackson wanted to be a musician, but he was a right. doctor, you know, and he knew yeah. how to be a doctor because mm-hmm. his, his parents were or whatever, there's no way, uh, he would be able to do anything else. Like you said with Clark, she would, she could draw, but man, she would definitely have to probably be a doctor because her mom could teach her properly. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> that's cool. dope i'm glad you guys I'm glad you guys brought up uh brought up um uh pike head cannon i'm gonna be thinking about that for a while oh we love pike <laughs> love pike so aaron good aaron do you have other head cannons um i not a ton i think um i sort of feel like uh wells would have been pike's favorite student i would like to mm-hmm. i i kind of would like to I don't know. There's just like something about Wells and Pike. Like they're very different, obviously, but like hmm. I, I, I don't think they are. I think it's just a young version of him. I don't yeah, know I how. I was gonna say. I was gonna say. Yeah, I think they had. They say they both have that like really fierce loyalty. You know that really fierce strength. You know yeah. honor. Mm-hmm. You know. Exactly. Uh, I I think that's a very good parallel. Uh, I loved Wells Jaha, um, and I think oh, while while it was like. I think him dying was an important part of the show because it really thrust us into where it needed to be at that time. Um, It's definitely one that still, I think, resonates with – it's why people still talk about him, you know? Yeah. Uh, It it, it was a big deal. Nobody ever thought Wells was going to go. That was – he shrank honor, loyalty, he's everything, all that stuff that you love, and boom. Yeah, yeah, and then he gets Ned Stark in the episode, the third episode, and you're like, "Whoa, okay, that's yeah. the kind of show this is." We yeah, didn't even exactly. wait till episode ten. We Ned Starked him early. That's crazy. yeah, yeah, exactly. Didn't you know? even wait. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that also says a testament to Eli Gore, you know, making you feel that oh, in three episodes. Oh um, yeah, oh yeah, and, and we're still talking about this yeah. later. Yeah. And you know, and like we saw, you know, Jaha had a couple of flashes of of wells in season four and like every time someone mentions him or you know you see him or whatever it's just like you clutch your chest like oh wells um yeah, yeah. well exactly when <laughs> like only... when jaha remember like when jaha took the chip and he couldn't remember his son and he just said wells i think every, oh, it resonated God. with everybody because not only did we think it was crazy that he didn't remember him how could you not remember wells we all remember yeah. wells. <laughs> exactly how oh, dare you, sir? How yeah. dare you? Yeah, and I, I think it's really, I think it's really important. And I, it was funny how, like, that is the p- moment that the show kind of changed um, just before Murphy got hung. Um, that set up everything to go. I think it was like, um, it must have been such a hard thing to write, but it was so necessary. Yeah, and really, that's really yeah. where the show is now, which is cool. Yeah, it set the tone. You know, it kind of lets you know, yeah. like, this is the actual show that you're watching. Exactly. Yeah. If you like somebody, they are not safe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. All right. Question three, AJ Winter at AJ Winter Books. I have some writing questions as I'm a writer myself. Claire, how did you find your agent? How long did it take you to query? And how is your next book going? Aaron, what is your book about? Is it fiction or is it an academic piece? And for both of you, what do you struggle with most in writing besides procrastination? <laughs> Thanks for letting us ask the question. Can't wait for season five podcast. Um, yeah, so let's start with uh, Claire. Claire, how'd you find your agent? How long did it take you to query? And what's your, how's your next book going? 
Okay, so um, so this is the story of how the Rewind Files came to be. Um, I I do not have an agent, and I did not do any querying, so I still don't actually have any helpful advice to give anybody else writing a book <laughs> about how you get a book published, because this kind of, this is how it all sort of dropped in my lap. So my brother is a film editor in LA, and he at the time was working for a company called Retrofit, and um, the main kind of stuff that Retrofit does is like, um, you know, when you're watching like a, a box set of DVDs or a movie on DVD and there's like the kind of special features, you know, feature interviews and things like that, or like web content that goes along with the show. So that's kind of so retrofit basically are sort of an industry leader in doing that for all kinds of things in what you would sort of loosely categorize as like the nerd genre. So Christopher worked on like the Stephen Hawking movie and a bunch of Marvel things and uh, The Purge. Uh, you know, doing like webisodes and actor interviews and editing things like that. Um, so, uh, so this this company decided that they wanted to get into creating original content, um, sort of ideally in the future for film and TV. But they wanted to start with uh, books and eBooks, and they wanted to kind of identify um, underrepresented uh, writers who might otherwise have had a hard time kind of breaking into publishing, but who had a story that they were interested in, and publish the book. First and kind of start building up a little bit of a publishing wing. So my brother emailed me and he's like, hey, these guys that I work for want to start like publishing books. And he's like, you should send them your Watergate thing, which he only knew about because he and I had tried and failed like twice to finish National Novel Writing Month. So I, so what he knew, so I had like 30 pages kicking around on my hard drive in Microsoft Word of like a time travel story about Watergate that I never really thought I was going to finish because it always kind of kept getting shoved to the back burner behind like theater projects or other things I was writing that were more kind of, um, that, you know, had deadlines coming up sooner. And so I was like, Oh, someday I'll come back to that thing. But, um, so he was like, you should send the Watergate thing to these guys at retrofit. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I was like, I have friends who write books. This is how it works. You write a book, then you edit the book. Then you like shop the manuscript around. Then you send out a million query letters. Then maybe an agent reads it. Like this is a whole, like I have friends who've been trying to shop out books for like five years. You know, I was like, you can't just send 30 pages in Microsoft Word to a publisher and be like, make this into a book for me. Like this is not how it works. Um, so I like refused to do it because I felt like this is just not, you know, this is just not how the thing works. And, uh, but he was like, he's like, fine, send it to me and I'll send it to them. Like you don't have to get involved. Um, yeah. But uh, so he did. But I was like, all right, but like, you're stupid. Nothing's going to happen. Uh, and, then the, and then they called me like three. So I like polished up the little bit that I had um, and was kind of like, all right, here's like the opening, like three chapters that kind of more or less hang together. You know, here you go. Um, and then three days later, the publisher called me and he was like, hey, so we want to publish your book. And I was like, whoa, it's, did he tell like it's not a book? Did he did he tell you that what he sent you was like that's all there is? I was like I don't know how it ends. I don't even really know how it middles. Like I don't know what I'm, I've never I don't, what, have I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and he was like, well, figure it out. So um, so they so I'm I'm very aware of the fact that I had a um, completely unreplicable publishing experience with these people, and they've been like so incredible. Like uh, Chris Hanada, who's the the publisher of Retrofit and is also my editor, um, 
is incredible. He's so smart and he just like got the story immediately and, um, and really like the sort of perfect balance of like holding my hand, you know, while I was sort of undertaking this huge, scary thing with also really like kind of like riding my ass when I needed it. Like I would send him something and he's like, you can't do that because you made the rules of how time travel works really, really clear in the first chapter and you can't pull the rug out just because you want to like, you know, have like a happy ending moment there. And I was like, Oh, fine. Um, or I would just send him something where it's like, I know there's a giant plot hole here, but I'm really tired and I don't want to write anymore. So I'm hoping you just won't see it. And he would be like, okay, so the giant plot hole, and I'm like, oh my God. Oh God. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's like, God damn it, you're too smart. Um, But it made the book so much better. Like I had a whole initial ending plotted out that we ended up throwing away because he basically was like, you can't, you know, my, my desire to make sure everybody gets a happy ending was contrary to the laws of physics that I had set up for how time travel works. And he was like, you can't do that. So dead people stay dead. So, um, uh, so he, so I think it's a much, much, much better book for his intervention. And we just had a great relationship. And I also like as a woman writing science fiction, like I've heard so many horror stories from other women at like, you know, bigger, more mercenary publishers where, um, either where somebody says, well, we have to like, you know, you have to like add a male love interest or add another male character. Otherwise people won't care. Or if it's a female driven sci-fi book that it's marketed as like science fiction for ladies, you know, like, oh, you, get send out them, of here. like you send them a book yeah. that's like about like a woman astronaut and then the proof comes back to you with like a pink high heeled shoe on the cover or whatever. Oh, you know? oh, fuck uh, that. And, and so retrofit, which I really appreciated, like it's a, you know, it's a story from the point of view of a young woman and her primary relationship in the book is like with her mother and with her like group of friends and with her kind of trying to find her place at work. But it's a very much like woman driven story and they never treated it as anything other than what it was, which I really loved. Um, So they're incredible. They're still very small. They have me and one other writer um, and, and the, bulk of what they do is still kind of film stuff. So they're still kind of growing, but they really like, they invested like a huge amount of resources in me, which is amazing. So they want, so they want two more books. So I'm now on, um, I'm on contract for, uh, for two sequels to the rewind files. And I am, um, amazing. I'm yes. in, thank you. Um, so it's very proud. exciting. It's, it's very overwhelming because like now I know how hard it is to write a book. I was kind of, there was a lot of hubris the first time I was like, I can do this. Sure. Whatever. How hard can this be? And now I'm like, Oh, it's incredibly hard. It's really stressful. There are a lot of words in books as it turns out. Um, yeah. So like, you know, like, I've been writing plays for years and years. And like, I think my, my biggest play that I, that I had been workshopping the past couple of years um, just in terms of like a pure word count is this like 12 times more words in the book than there is in a play, you know? Um, yep, and I, uh, and I yep. felt every single one of them. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so we've been working for the past, for like a year and a half, I think in trying to kind of hatch out some ideas we had. Um, I had a, kind of proposal for the sequel that I pitched to them right before the election. And then afterwards we kind of sort of check back in with each other and we're like everything, like everything feels different now. Like the world feels different now. This is a book set in the future with a woman who's like a scholar of the U S presidency. So like, this is a thing that happened now in her world. And like, do we want to address that? How much we want to address it? Um, and, and trying to sort of figure out like how to kind of thread that in. And so where we kind of landed was sort of exploring like, um, in a more sort of abstract way, not in a like way where 
current events come into it specifically, but kind of that sensation of like waking up in the morning and realizing, like kind of looking around and realizing that the world you're in is not what you thought it was, you know, and that sort of feeling I think that a lot of us had after the election and like kind of feeling at that a little bit. It was amazing after the election, how many people, you know, that who have read Claire's book. So, so in the book, there's a thing called the chronomalies, like anomaly, but like cron with time chronomalies. So it's like an anomaly in the like timeline. A, yeah, like the glitch in the timeline. Yeah. yeah. I love puns. <laughs> yeah. It's a portmanteau. <laughs> it's amazing. So, um, and so, and then, you know, and so like the main character works for the time travel bureau and they work basically like when time travel was invented, there was like 10 years where everyone just kind of was like the, the wild west and people just totally screwed up the general timeline. And then after 10 years, every, the world governments were kind of like, okay, we got to like, we, fix this. We, we gotta fix this. Okay, but make sure make sure no spoilers. I haven't had time to read it yet, but I'm okay. currently I have. But in May, I am able to read that book. And I was just gonna say we should probably have a podcast after I do that. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, we totally should. should. We totally should. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so so yeah, this is this is just the premise. This is no spoiler. So they the time travel was invented and people went wild for ten years, and then they were like, oh shit. It turns out that if you mess with time, it just starts doing crazy shit to try to like correct itself. Um, yep. And so, so then, so now like all the world governments, you know, they they have a time travel bureau and they have agents who are trained in specific time periods and they're sent back whenever. So like they, they have people who like, they have like analysts who look at a sort of like computer rendering of the general of the main, the timeline. And then when they see a chronomaly, which is like, you know, like where the data shows that something is off, then they go back and they figure out like, okay, what's happened here that we need to correct Chronomaly might Chronomaly. be the sexiest word I've ever heard. Yes. Isn't it, it amazing? I, it, it is It is honestly the thing in the book I am the most proud of. It's, and I remember, it is like, like okay, no so lie. I, I'm a nerd. I love time travel and I love puns. And that word to me, if that <laughs> word was a girl, I would marry her right now. <laughs> As you should. But I remember. I, my God. After I'm the, so happy that I feel like this, like my baby is being appreciated. Cause like I, I your was, baby is getting married. <laughs> I was very proud of that word when it, when it came to me. So I'm, I'm delighted that you are this delighted. Oh God. I'm delighted. Um, we can have a, we can have a chronomaly podcast. Anyhow, go yeah, ahead. Have a chronomaly podcast, but, um, but yeah, I just remember, I remember after the, after like the, the day after the election, you know, all these people, everybody that I knew who had read Claire's book was like, this has got to be a chronomaly, right? Like, right. it feels like a like, Claire, what's going on? This is a chronomaly, surely. Yes. <laughs> and then, and then at the, so then at the Oscars, when like the Moonlight La La Land thing happened uh-huh. and people were like making jokes about time travelers with that too. Like, the, I was like, the system is self-correcting, yeah. guys. Like, oh, yeah. so you, so like, so you're basically like, like the Mandela effect, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, uh-huh. no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like, with, like um, in the Matrix when they see the cat twice, like, like Deja Vu, right. stuff like like that yeah, okay yeah mm-hmm. um exactly yeah so uh and so now it's sort of become a meme you know people are continually like like there's always like memes on tumblr and twitter and facebook going around about like time travelers like you know existing in this current administration or whatever and you know or like is this like a glitch in the timeline and, pe- and people send them to me like whenever one of those pops up 14 people will send it to me like have you seen this joke about time travel and i'm like yes i have <laughs> but Amazing. i love that i love that that's my brand now um yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chronomaly is your brand. We got to get Chronomaly yeah. shirts. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Um, so yeah. So then in terms of the second and third one, without giving any spoilers, um, the big thing that we're doing is 
opening the world up a lot. So the first one is very much set like the U.S. Time Travel Bureau, how it works, this sort of very small group of uh, Reggie, the main character, who's kind of like a like a desk nerd um, and her mom who runs the place. And, uh, and, and they're kind of little cohort posse. Um, and then in the second one and the third one, which is kind of going to be like one big story broken in half. So it'll be like, you know, the next one's the empire strikes back and it'll end on a big cliffhanger and then they'll wrap up the third one. Um, and it's gonna, it's gonna unpack a lot of like how the international time travel bureaus work together. Like, what does it look like outside of the U S so, um, you know, does the Italian Time Travel Bureau have a liaison with the Vatican? And are there areas in the, you know, in the Middle East or the Mediterranean where so much of Western civilization was formed there that, like, maybe instead of, like, Greece having a bureau just country by country, there's, like, you know, it's by era. So there's, like, a whole, like, ancient Greece department. And then there, you know, it was sort of split up that way or um, where the line, where... Co- you know, EU? colonization has like you you was formed. Did yeah. all of the time travel bureaus have to like merge? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And or like or like colonization, like yeah, yeah. the redrawing of the map of lines of like what defines a country is so fluid. Yeah. Um, so how do you how do you say like, you know, okay, you're in charge of like everything that has happened in Italy ever. And it's like, well, what is Italy? What was Italy? Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. so yeah. Um, yeah. So would, so would like Brexit be like a chronomaly? I I, mean, I, would I think, think so. so. I think, and so. I think the fact that, that that now there's this like resistance to it, and you know, and and that people sort of woke up the next day and were like, oh, oh shit, we didn't know what was gonna happen. So part of me was like, maybe the system is self-correcting. And also, <laughs> like after so after Trump and Brexit, there was that whole kind of lineup of like hard right-wing elections that like swung the other way where it was like, people are like, Oh shit, we don't want to be Trump and Brexit. So then I was like, maybe think like, maybe the system is self-correcting slowly with like France and everything else. But, cool. um, yeah. So anyway, so, so that's what I'm working on. Um, my time, like, Oh my God, we're going to talk too much about this book afterwards. Well, right. I, we should another <laughs> one. Would you consider like, like time then to be like the body if it's injured, like it, it can heal itself. Yes, that's, um, yeah, the way that I sort of look at it is like, um, the, so the, there's a, there's sort of a, a timeline that is the way things are kind of like supposed to happen. And if, and the only way that that gets altered is if somebody artificially messes with it. Got and, it. um, so all those changes kind of come from like, it's a, it's a stable, consistent sort of thing extending both directions until somebody goes in and starts kind of like messing with stuff. Um, but then in an attempt to repair itself, sometimes it like overcorrects and, you know, and the damage ends up being like astronomical. So the sort of like the kind of initial premise of the, the first book, and this isn't a spoiler, this is what's on like the back of the book, but, um, but Reggie realizes sort of accidentally stumbles upon the fact that this huge world war three that happened in the 1980s in her era where the U S and China kind of bombed the shit out of each other until the U S basically conquered China and annexed it. Um, she realizes that that was a thing that wasn't supposed to happen. And so her whole kind of like arc over the course of the book is trying to figure out like how far does she have to go back to find like, what's the one tiny moment where something went wrong that then spiraled and spiraled and spiraled and spiraled. And the system kind of created this whole elaborate like thing. So, um, and, and something that I think is sort of an interesting 
thing that I bump up against a lot in that book is like, I'm also like, I'm a religious person. Like I I'm Catholic. And, and so there's always, so I, I always find myself sort of thinking a lot about like, I'm really fascinated by, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, the intersection between um, like time travel and what that sort of implies about things being predestined alongside like free will, you know, and mm-hmm. how do those things kind of coexist? And so that's just sort of something that I kind of just mull over a lot as I'm, yeah. you know, as I'm writing. But yeah, so that's, that's me. That's my book. That's my story. Um, Aaron, yeah, Aaron, talk about yours. We're going to have definitely have a, uh, a Rewind Files discussion yes, after yes, that. Yes, yes, excellent. So, uh, Aaron, what is your book about? Is it fiction? Is it an ab- academic piece? Um, it's going to be a lot less exciting than Claire's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm a professor. I'm an English professor. So it's a, it's a scholarly book. Um, my Great. My <laughs> Yeah. So there's no plot. Um Although there is an argument. Uh, so my specialties are, I work on 18th century British literature and then, and um, environmental, sort of like environmental thinking, environmental history. Um, so uh, the sort of very short version of this is that my, the book is about this uh, sort of way of thinking about the relationship between human beings and nature um, that I'm arguing was a kind of foundational sort of set of assumptions about that relationship um, for the hundred years, approximately from 1650 to 1750. And so I'm sort of looking at like, what was that relationship? Um, what sort of like ethical ideas did it entail about what sorts of responsibility human beings have towards, um, towards non-human beings, but then also like in terms of the way that they use uh, the cool. environment um, and then sort of ending on looking at why that way of thinking kind of declined and, and mostly disappeared for a while. Awesome. Um, yes. So that's, that's the short that version. Was, that is not, that is not less interesting at all. That's just like, uh, <laughs> everyone, everyone wants to hear about human condition it, all the time. Yes. It's all people yeah. are excited about. It's why reality TV is so big. Yes, that's true. <laughs> tell, tell Sachin about the class where you might teach the hundred. Oh what? yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, like, you know, because I study environmental stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested in, like, the things that, are, the kind of, like, intellectual questions I'm interested in ultimately are, like, like, the big ones are what exactly is, like, what exactly is the relationship between human beings and the rest of the world, you know, like, how do we sort of fit into um, that, to, to non-human world, and then also, how, like, especially about how, like, how ways that we sort of conceive of that, like ways that we conceive, um, shape what we do. Um, and, uh, and then another sort of big set of questions that I'm really interested in. Um, and this is one of the things that I'm really, really like that I love about the hundred. And I'm just like, so I get so geeked out that like the show has really kind of, um, explored this more and more and more over the seasons, which is the question of like, what does he, what does it even mean to be a human being? Like, what is the definition of, the human. Um, when we say human, do we mean like species, biological species? Do we mean something like, you know, humanity as in something humanity, like, yeah. yeah, or kind of like moral status? Do we mean, you know, like, do we, do we think about humanity as being like the only creature with reason? What happens? What's, we, what's great about that? That's true. Cause when we think about humans, like in humanity, when somebody does something deplorable, we call them a monster. We almost yeah. try to de- 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 we almost try to derail them from the fact that they are human, yes. so they can separate them from us. That's not us. That's not who we are. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, 
Yep. That, and that's we, and that's we, interesting. Yeah, and we, we, we talk about crimes, like particularly heinous crimes, like, you know, we'll call someone inhuman, you know, like a, a grisly yep. murder yep. is inhuman, even, which, which is one of those things where it's like, you know, like that's, we, we use that, I think you're right, to distance that action from our kind of identity, but at the same time, it's sort of like, you could make a case for that being a very human thing, you know? A hundred percent, yeah. So, um, so I'm really interested in kind of like, again, the, the tension of these various ways that we define human, and especially in the places where they start to fray, you know, and also like looking at how these definitions have have evolved um over time like you know from like the 17th century the 1600s which is where i my sort of specialty starts up until now like there's a lot of stuff that's changed there's also like a remarkable amount of stuff that stayed the same um and so um uh so and obviously like this is one of those things that like sci-fi is like the best at you know like sci-fi is always dug like going all the way back to you know mary shelley's frankenstein um which some people have called the first sci-fi novel. Like that's really the question in a lot of ways at the heart of that novel is like, so Victor Frankenstein makes this creature out of reanimated dead parts. And the yeah. creature has a mind and he has a heart and he has a desire. You know, he has, he has a lot of quote unquote human qualities and probably, you know, he has like, if you DNA tested him, he has human DNA because he's made of human body parts but he isn't quite human you know so like what exactly is he and and what kinds of like uh what ways does that sort of challenge how we try to define ourselves you know either positively or against like monsters or animals or whatever um thinking more along this it feels like what we do is somebody we we think of humans until somebody does something that they almost aren't thinking about other humans when they do it like how could somebody how can somebody as a human do this to another human if they know that that's what they are? Well, right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, one of the ways that people become capable of doing like committing things like genocide is by sort of redrawing the definitions of human to exclude certain groups of people. Yeah, totally. Um, because yeah, yeah, absolutely. You think about these people as not human, so we can do this to them or get rid of them or whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, they, they want to er- eradicate a certain part from society so them so they can be humans. Yeah, exactly. Because right, if you if you really believe that they were equal in humanity to you, you couldn't do that. So you, you have to like. Yeah figure out how to be like, well, they're like kind of like us, but not really. And you create these sort of like us versus them lines because otherwise like any, anyone with any form of a conscience could not permit themselves to like, if you actually saw them as being like you, yeah. you know, I mean, to be totally nerdy, it's like mudbloods, right? You yeah, don't consider, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. You don't yeah. consider them, but you don't consider, because that I think Harry Potter is so many uh, uh, translatable parts to, humanity because it's sure. not just a nerdy thing the way that she built that universe was that you know uh, it was, she put so many things in there that we deal with every day like mudbloods are not actually magicians mm-hmm. because they're not a full magician's family so it's the same thing with humans they're they're there we consider some humans mudbloods for example mm-hmm. not actually human right exactly that's interesting yeah, and yeah, like yeah. historically too for a long time i think you know it's interesting it sort of maps onto gender and you know and, and race and nationality you yeah. know so like through a lot of if you look at sort of like western history (laughs) there are a lot of men for a long time who didn't you know really think that women were fully human in the same way that men were or didn't believe that you know people from other races or continents were fully human and so 
Um, so I'm, I'm interested in those questions. And so uh, I'm teaching next fall. I'm, I'm going to teach a class um, on sci-fi. I'm, gonna start with, I'm starting in the 17th century with this crazy book called The Blazing World by this woman named uh, Margaret Cavendish, who was the first woman to visit the Royal Society in London, which was like the very first scientific society um, in England. It's like all, you know, it was, it was like uh, Newton. Uh, Isaac yeah. Newton was one of the founding members. It's like all these guys, you know, who had invented and perfected the microscope and something so and forth. They kind of got together to do science together. But women weren't allowed until I'm, I don't even know, but like, I think the 20th century. Mark Cavendish was the first and only woman to visit um, for like the first 300 years that this uh, society existed, basically. Um, and she's really interesting because she was like, she was a skeptic, you know, she's like she she wrote this long sort of philosophical treatise about like, why their approach to knowledge was wrong. And she wrote this crazy book called The Blazing World, which is basically like her scientific theories. And then she like invents an alternate universe. Um, where like the main character like sails north and then goes through like there's like a, a a veil between the worlds and she passes over into this sort of like parallel universe. Um, and in the parallel universe, it like follows all of Margaret Cavendish's like her sort of theories about science and rules. Um, and it's like super. She she didn't like microscopes because she thought that um, she's basically like like you know. These these men, these like scientific men are saying, like, if I have a microscope, I'm looking directly at the actual thing. And her point, um, which in a lot of ways anticipates anticipated the discoveries of 20th century physics, she said, when you're looking through something, looking at something through a tool, through a lens, you know, like a microscope, you're not looking at the thing, you're looking at a distortion of the thing. Um, yes. and to act like cool. what you're seeing is the actual thing and, and that looking through this tool gives you the full truth. That's like, that's not the case. That's, you know, that introduces all these sort of problems. Absolutely. And then, then you go even deeper. You can think about, you know, each person's eyes being a lens and everything that mm-hmm. everybody sees is through their own lens. Exactly. You know, we have no idea what anybody is seeing ever, uh, right. So we, it's all just a, a based on our perception of what we think their perception is. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, even like when you look in the mirror, you're not really seeing what you actually look like. Yeah. Like every, oh. yeah. You're, you're distorting it also mm-hmm. too based on your brain. I mean, it's just all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's all, well, she, it, it, she pointed out, you know, like, let's say like, what if there's a crack in your lens and you don't know it's there, but so you think that's real and it's not. And, you know, so she was pointing out all these sort of like flaws in it, which is really fascinating. Like it's one of those things where people thought that she was, she was sort of dismissed as a kook for a long time. And then yeah. we discovered in the 20th century, like post, after the discovery, you know, that it is an actual like law of physics that if you look, that looking at something changes it, you know, that the, yeah. the observer is not outside of the system. And people were like, holy crap, this woman was like really smart. And she like actually sort of figured out some things that it took the scientific community 300 years to figure out. Um, yeah. But her solution to this in her sort of fictional world um, is that there are... Uh, this woman becomes like the empress. Cause she was a big, she was, she was very into absolute monarchy. So she becomes the absolute ruler of this world. And there are all these, um, she calls them bird men and bear men and, and all So it's like basically like hybrid human animal people. Um, yeah. who, so that because they're hybrids, you know, and there's worm men, they have different ways 
they have different capabilities and different ways of perceiving things. And so instead of having microscopes and telescopes, she has the birdmen fly up into space and visit the moon and then come back and tell her what she's what they see. And then she has the worm men, you know, like go underground and look at the core of the earth and tell her what they saw. And she has fish men who go underwater. So she just has all these like creatures with specialized perception who can come back and yeah. tell her um, uh, what's going on. So, um, so, so I'm just kind of the, the, the class is about, uh, uh, it's all like women created sci-fi. So it's like starting with Margaret Cavendish and going up until like very recently, just like women creating sort of alternate worlds and thinking about like, um, you know, how, uh, how their sort of experience as women in different times and places in different, you know, different like ethnic or, or racial or sort of national backgrounds inform yep. the ways that they sort of encounter a world that for so long has been really dominated by sort of a masculine Western point of view and like what kinds of insights that sci-fi can bring or critiques can bring to um, the worlds that they're, that they live in, you know, and, and, and like kind of alternate ways of thinking, alternate possibilities that become visible. Um, so, yeah, so I think I'm going to, work in some episodes of the hundred in there. Uh, Sweet. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think you have enough information to make like a, you know, a couple of classes. I think uh, you can make I definitely two, do. like a one one and one Oh two. Yeah, no, seriously. I got, oh, yeah. way, I already have way more stuff on my list than I can possibly teach in a semester. And, and I might, who would want to go to that class. Exactly. Yes. I got to sit in on Aaron's class one time. Like I think it was years ago um, when she was in grad school, so she was student teaching, but I got to sit in on, um, on her class one time when she was teaching the vampire novel Carmilla. And I was like, you know, like I love Erin. And so I was like, I, like I knew and believed that she would be a good teacher, but I was like, Oh my God, she's such a good teacher. Like I'm so hooked. <laughs> like, I, I, it. I, was, all your I was classes. Riveted. I was like, I was about to take an online course. I should have gotten a pad. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so You'd be welcome. So smart. Uh, uh, I'm in there. I yeah, saved me a seat. The best part about the class that Claire visited are you uh, for for those who might not be familiar with Carmilla. This is a, a little. It's like a novella. It's like a very short. It's like a hundred pages or something um, by this Irish writer Sheridan Lefanu. Um, and uh, I think the premise is that Carmilla is, she's a she's the first person narrator and she's like right, she's traveling through a very distant remote area in I think Eastern Europe or something like that um, and she winds up being stuck and having to stay in this castle where there's this mysterious woman who's like, you know, very pale and cold and whatever. Um, and sort of the, the, the interesting thing about it is that, um, you know, it has like all of that, like the vampire definitely uh, seduces the, the, the main character girl, but of course the vampire is a woman. So it's like kind of like not, not, um, overtly, because this was uh, Victorian literature, but it's like, if you can read Victorian literature, you can see, like, this is a really, like, intensely homoerotic, you know, sort of, like, lesbian uh, story. Um, but yeah. I was teaching this at Notre Dame, which is where I did my PhD. Um, so, you know, it's like a bunch of undergrads. And undergrads never, like, they never, they don't have dirty enough minds. Like, I always have to be like, <laughs> I know this is a serious English class, but I swear, to, but, like, I'm telling you, that is a sex joke. Anytime you think it's a sex joke, it's a sex joke. And when, every no, time. Every time. And when you don't think it's a sex joke, it's still a sex joke. It's, yeah, um, always. So, uh, so we got to the part in the in the novella 
where there's like, and, and like part of the problem, of course, like, so for one thing, they have a hard time, you know, like they're just like, they, their minds are not in the gutter when they're in class, which is, you know, probably good, but like, it's fair. Yeah. Fair, but you need to be in the gutter to be in an English class. Um, and <laughs> Otherwise you're not going to learn anything. Exactly. Exactly. And the other problem is that it's Victorian, right? So they can't say anything, they can't say anything like directly, you know, it has to, it's all like sort of like this coded language, um, and so they, they got, we got, we're discussing the part of the book where like the girl's laying in bed and the vampire is with her and the vampire keeps like putting her head on her breast and the girl is sort of overcome with these sensations that she doesn't understand and her body seizes up and like, it's this very like weird sort of impressionistic writing. And, um, and so I asked the class, I was like, okay, so what do you think is going on here? And they're like, I have no idea. No, they're like, we have no clue. This is so weird. And I'm like. <laughs> I think she's having an orgasm. And they all just went <gasps> and like stared at me with like <laughs> horror. And I was like, like, like total just like disbelief. They're like, uh, and I'm like, yeah. And they're like, no, I mean, I don't know. I'm like, no, I'm telling you that is an orgasm. They're just like <laughs> aghast. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Uh, because you can't Catholic say that arts. word. You can't yeah. say that word to kids because yeah. they lose it. And they can't. And they're all, you know, they're like good. They're the Notre Dame. So they're like almost all good you know, good Catholic kids who went to Catholic yeah. high mm-hmm. schools. And they're just like, oh, my God. You know, like, no one's supposed to talk about sex. <laughs> you, can't, you can't talk about sex here. You can't say orgasm. You're going to get some angry letters. We are parents. in school. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I'm like, look, I'm just telling you facts. <laughs> These are just legit facts, guys. If you don't, if you, if you can't say the word out loud, you just, you're not going to have any fun in your life. So exactly. we're going to make sure. Exactly. Just get oh my comfortable God. with it. Awesome. All right, so you let me know when that class comes, and I'm, yes. I'm going to be there. Excellent. You let me know when that cl- cat class comes, and I'll be there. <laughs> I get it. Wait, what's what's the joke? I don't I don't understand. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm uh-huh. just laughing because you guys yeah. laughed. Did I tell you guys I like puns? Yes. You did. I don't know if anybody I don't know if anybody out there is aware that Sutton likes puns, but I do. <laughs> it's honestly that's my favorite trait in a person. I think that's like. The unifying thread, especially like all the guys in my life that I really like, like my dad, my brothers, like all my guy best friends, like the one thing that they all have in common is <laughs> everyone loves puns. And I just, and I just love that. So like when I meet someone who like loves puns, I'm like, you're my people. Yes. I understand. You're my, you. Yes. <laughs> I love pun people. <laughs> They're the best. Good one. That wasn't necessarily a pun. That was more of an alliteration, but I, I liked it the puns. You would love Aaron's husband so much, Sachin. Like, you guys, like, not just because you're both, like, wrestling fans and Back to the Future fans, but, like, just sense of humor-wise, you guys have, like, so much in common. He's also Oh, my God. I'm, I'm very excited. I'm gonna I've heard so much about him already, and I'm already yeah. like, look, if you like wrestling and puns, I'm pretty much in. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You guys should be, you really should be best friends. <laughs> yeah. WWE should be friends. Okay. Um... <laughs> The last part of that question is, do you guys have any, tr- what, is, what is the thing that you guys find most difficult about writing? Oh, man. What is, like, what is, what is the hardest part? And like, uh, let's make this, um, like, in terms of the, let's do it in terms of like process. Like, so when you're, when you're sitting down, is it is the beginning? Is it the middle? Is it the end? What is, what is the part about writing that you find that you just, you, every time you get to it, you just have a stumbling block? It, the the beginning of every writing session is hard for me. Like I I just have to I've had to learn that anytime I sit down to write, like every time I sit down to write, the first ten minutes, I'm just going to be like 
I don't want to do this. I want to get up and do something else. What am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. You know, like just there's always going to be resistance when you sit down and I just have to plan on like, okay, just like sit there and start working and, and like give it 10, 15 minutes. And then the next thing you know, you will, you'll be in the flow again and it'll be fine. But every single time I sit down that first like 10, 15 minutes is just like, like, what is hard. this? I don't yeah, I, right. I have no idea. Exactly. The, how did I come up with ideas? Yeah. What are words? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm I'm some ways similar and some ways the opposite. The the thing that I struggle with the most is is finishing things. Like I feel like I I I have lots of you know, like all like like lots of ideas. Like I can write this, I can write this, and then and then just sort of turning like turning that into something that I actually can like see all the way through to the end and complete is a challenge. But the biggest thing I've had to learn and had to kind of force myself to kind of push against my natural inclinations when I was writing this book is like, you know, I, for my whole life up until I started working on this book, writing was something that I did, like, you know, like I have like a, you know, 40 hour week, full-time job. And I would come home and like write in the evenings, you know, like, like I, you know, go work all day. And then like evenings weekends, I would work on like whatever play I was writing. And, um, so I got used to like, it was something that, that you squeeze into your like, you know, free time. And it's something that I like did for myself. Um, and, and so it took me like a really long time to, to finish things because you're sort of carving out like an hour or two each night. And, and with the book, with the deadlines that they gave me, it was like, I have to like, this is my full-time job now. Like I have to be disciplined. I have to like get up in the morning and sit down and do this. And, um, and having to like figure out how to impose structure on something that I was used to being like, you know, what you do in bed with a cup of tea before you go to sleep as a sort of like, you know, kind of creative exercise and having to be like, nope, like you have a contract and somebody is paying you and you have deadlines and like, this is your job. Um, and how to like be creative in that framework was really challenging for me. And like, I don't outline normally when I write, I kind of just like, you know, uh, things kind of appear piecemeal. Like I might write like a scrap of some scene and then a scrap of some other thing. And it's all kind of like bits and pieces. And then eventually as you keep going, it kind of stitches itself together. Uh, um, But I don't start at the beginning and end at the end. And, uh, and so for this book, um, so the problem with that with the first book was that I would, you know, I'd hit a place where it's like, oh, I want to change something. And that, that change requires going back to the beginning and rewriting a whole chapter that we thought was locked because it's like, well, now actually we thought it was going to be A, but now it's going to be B. So I've got to go all the way back to that first conversation where that thing comes up and like plant a whole different trail of clues. Um, so this one, I really felt like I had to outline before I started it. So we kind of like knew what we were doing and that process of like writing it before I write it almost like figuring out what the story is going to be and putting that kind of structure in place before I've sat down to kind of like, I don't know, let's wing it. Um, so just, yeah, structure and, and discipline and things like that. I just really, you know, like I'm a person who does my best writing between like 10 at night and two in the morning, you know, and having to sort of turn that into the kind of structure that allow you to finish a whole book in nine months was like totally pushing uphill for me. That's the organizational stuff is where I feel like I really struggle. <laughs> yeah, sweet. That's a, that's it's it's funny that like 
it's it's you so you're, you're like a structure person you think you need you need it to be like bits and pieces and then pop them together like you need to see them in different uh um see different scenes in different places and then place them where they need to be kind of yeah well i guess for for me the way the way it usually works is or i guess the way it works when it works best is like something will sort of pop into my head and i have to kind of get it down on paper before i forget it and i don't always know um when that thing happens, like, like awesome. what it's going to be or where it's going to sort of fit in. And, um, and so sometimes it'll be like, like, I'll, like I'll hear less, like two people are having an argument in my head and I'm like, I don't know who they are. I don't know what their story is, but I know that like, she's really mad at him about this thing. And I have to kind of like stop and like grab my iPhone and like jot all the whatever down. And then sometimes like the story kind of comes from, from that, or I'll have, have like a premise and kind of, like, I know what this world is and I know who these characters are, but like maybe the first scene that pops into my head, like, I mean, I think maybe for the rewind files, I think the first thing that I wrote was something that happened like two or three chapters in that's like a conversation between Reggie and her mom. Um, and then I kind of reverse engineered the beginning from that, but the first sort of piece that arrived kind of whole cloth in my head was not the very first moment, you know? So, yeah. so it's kind of all over the map and Trying well, to make sense. that a little bit more efficient has been sort of like a challenge. But yeah, things just kind of pop up when they pop up. And I'm like, I have to write this down or else I forget it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love that because it, it, it gives you like a basis of where to go in between kind of. Because it's like you have exactly. these great scenes and you're like, all right, how do I get to this one? Now? How do I get to this one? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's how to cool. stitch them together. Yeah. All right. Uh, that was, guys, that's been four questions. <laughs> a plethora. It's been an hour and 20 minutes. I, this is, this is my, this is my favorite thing of all time. I like people that talk. <laughs> we you guys talk. Are get, you guys, this is Claren, you guys, this That's is Claren. Right. We are going to get all of Claren. I'm not leaving until you know everything about them. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Question five from Kim at K-T-H-R-O. Kathro. <laughs> who, who was the first fictional character that made you realize, hmm, so I'm definitely not hetero. Two, also slightly tangential of that question, your most embarrassing, laughable celebrity crush from childhood. Mine was Scott Bale. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I like that's, throw- that's Kim, not Sachin, by the way. Yes, what? yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's Scott Bale. That's, <laughs> that question is from Kim. Um, although, I, you know, I've had, there are many dudes out there that, uh, you know, make me question my life. John Stamos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John Stamos. That's it. I think my most embarrassing uh, celebrity crush from my youth was um, my relatively brief but rather intense Charlie Sheen phase. Ooh, <laughs> uh, I get that. I yeah, get that. Yeah. And it was, it was because of Three Musketeers. Um, oh yeah! Oh yeah, yeah, that that goatee. Oof. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That movie was like iconic. Yes. Yeah. And then like less, but it was like one of those crushes that was like, you know how sometimes you have like a really, you know, you'll have like a brief but intense crush on someone, and then like, you know, you see them later, either like an actual person or a movie star or whatever, and then like you see it later and you're like, oh yeah, you know, like I I can see why I felt that way. And then there are other times yeah. you have the really brief intense crush and you look back and you're like, what the hell was what I, was what I was, right? What was going on? <laughs> Charlie Sheen was definitely one yeah. where I look back and I'm just like, I don't know what exactly it was that <laughs> made that happen. But like, I was so, I remember like I was, it was, and this is like, this is, I, so I was destined always, it was, it was always going to wind up with me 
you know, with a four-hour podcast about a TV show. Because, like, I've always been, like, super obsessive about, like, when I like something, I have to know everything. I also, like, I was always destined to have a PhD in something. Because, like, when I like something, I have to know everything about it. And I have to, like, consume everything, you know, like, find everything related to it. So I remember, like, looking up Charlie Sheen's filmography. And I was, like, 12, you know, like, 12 or 13, something like that. And the library, the, like, public library down the street from me had Platoon... Um, which was his first, and I was like, oh, good. I'll, you know, like it has my crush. So I watched Platoon when I was like 12. Oh my God. <laughs> For Charlie Sheen. Oh my God. <laughs> and it was, um, this is new information for me and I'm really enjoying it. I hadn't even thought about this until I got this question for, you know, decades probably. Oh my God. Uh, That's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was good. That there could be no better answer to that question. <laughs> Yeah, mine is mine's not nearly that good. Yeah. <laughs> I I would say my my most embarrassing one was just in terms of like the in in t- intensity of it in comparison to how little I care now. Um <laughs> is I was deeply smitten around the age of like maybe third or fourth grade with Jonathan Brandis from that Sequest oh, show. Yes. Um, Whoa. Oh yeah. And I I fully like wrote him fan letters to like the address <laughs> in the back of Tiger Beat, like for real for real. Um at least <laughs> twice. And I, I I like like I desperately wish that somewhere there existed like like that I had like kept a copy so I could like now see what like what third grade Claire had to say to Jonathan Brandis oh about working on Sequest. Yeah. I wish Oh God! So many, yeah. so many released letters that we have to release into the world. I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Jonathan Brandis, if you're out there. I really want to see what I said. So wherever it is in your agent's if, trash pile. Um, no, when I'm you sure that, that framed long. that framed letter you have in your office, please read it to all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that was my most embarrassing one, and then and then my probably my first like oh I might like girls crush. I would say around middle school, I was just like. I was ride or die for Dr. Beverly Crusher. I loved Dr. Crusher so much. Even baby Claire was into MILFs. I wonder why you like Abby so much. Right? Exactly. There's there's so many parallels. Oh my God. Um, Yeah. I, my, like my, probably like, I would say my like defining teenage crush was probably Major Kira from Deep Space Nine, which is like my favorite of all of the stars Trek, and I feel is like the most underrated one. But Beverly Crusher was like my first like TV true love. I just adored her so 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 much, um, and I did not understand why everyone thought that Troy was so much hotter. I was like, um, excuse you, no, Crusher no, says that's, a lot. That's, that's just because of the outfit. That's because of the yeah. outfit. I totally yeah, get your crush love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. No, no. Yeah, so, you, see, so, so brains, you know, you want, you wanted somebody who was just intelligent that could, that could, that could fix you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I love, well, and I also, you know, like I, on any show that I watch that has like a large number of young people characters, I'm always like, I only care about the parents. So like yeah. on Gilmore Girls, I didn't care who Rory dated. I thought she was too good for all of them, but I was deeply invested in Luke and Lorelai. And like, awesome. or like when I watched like the OC, I only cared about the parents. When I watch, like, I'm just like, I'm always like, where's like the tiny feisty mom and the like tall grumpy dad bickering at each other. Like <laughs> that's, that's who I want the whole show. All to about be. it. 
Love it. Um, yeah. um, so Picard and was like my formative one. Yeah. Aaron, what's yours? Yeah. Uh, so in terms of how did I finally, like the lady that made me realize I was bi, that's a complicated question because I didn't really, like it wasn't until relatively recently that I was like, that I kind of like fully was like, oh wait, no, I'm actually like, I'm, I'm bisexual. Um, yeah. and, and part of that is because, um, uh, I'm, I think I'm also, uh, like I just I'm 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 demisexual and that like I just don't have I just don't have much of a you know like sex isn't a huge thing for me and so I think I just kind of could skate past that question a lot of the time but yeah um looking back uh I think the formative crush was definitely Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman sweet oh that was the yeah one, like, I was absolutely That's obsessed a really good one with her like yeah. obsessed with her and I think like even when I was like. 10 or whatever, however old I was when that movie came out, which, by the way, that movie holds up. It is a good movie. Oh, it does. yeah. It's so good. Uh, yeah. So good. Um, it's the moment you realized you didn't want to dress as Catwoman, you wanted to dress with Catwoman. Exactly. <laughs> but I, it was like, it was complicated because I wanted to be her and also be with her at the same time. Like, if I could sort of just yeah. like, yeah. like somehow, you know, so it was like very, like, I think I, there's part of me that was just sort of for a long time was just kind of like, oh, I wanted to be Catwoman. And then I thought about it, you know, I kind of was thinking right. back about it. I was like, mm, no, it was definitely a little bit more than that. <laughs> uh, <Yeah. laughs> um, but more recently, I think uh, Haley Atwell was my sort of like. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, yeah. Very good choices. Yes. Very good choices. Yes. Very, very smart, intelligent, sassy choices. That's right. I like him sassy. <laughs> I think Princess Leia yeah. was also, you know, a big. Oh, yeah. You know, like I wanted I think to. She, I think she, she. I think she made a lot of people come out, to be honest. Yeah. And I think she so. made a lot of dudes, like, it, it was a, I think that she made a lot of dudes uh, have puberty. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And Maybe another, faster than they should have. Like, Han and Leia is one of my formative, you know, like, like, oh, yeah. fictional couples, yeah. OTP. I love and I think, like, and it was, like, super, it was, like, one of the first ones where I was, like, I wanted to be on both sides of it. Like, I wanted to be Han with yeah, Leia yeah. and Leia with Han, yes. you know? And yes. then also, like, I, I imprinted on that so much that, like, if you give me a fictional character who like bicker with each other and like pretend they don't like each other, but then become totally like partners and fall in love. Like that's my like bickering. I will oh, always just be like, okay, done. I'm there. Cause you know, that's the way, you know, that's where it leads. That's right. Exactly. Yep, yep. Exactly. It's got, it's fiery. It's got that passion. Exactly. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> All right. Question six from Caroline at echoes. Nevermore. Claire and Aaron, what was the moment you knew you were going to sell your soul to Cabby slash Bellark, respectively? Mm. Um, I think I was, you know, it's, I, I'm going to have to fall back on a Pride and Prejudice quote for this one, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, I was in the middle before I even knew I had begun. <laughs> um, which is what Darcy says when Elizabeth asked him when he fell in love with her. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> okay, so I think, like, I definitely by the end of season one, I was, like, all in on Bilark. Uh But I think the moment when I knew, the moment when it started, really, was in episode three, when Bel- uh, Bellamy is watching Clark Mercy kill Adam. Um, yeah. And I was, I was really in denial for a long time because, like, A, I really, I, like, I hated Bellamy until mid-season and I also was very like I was pissed I was like so mad I was like you're gonna make me like this guy aren't you god damn it um so I was like I was in denial about liking Bellamy for a while and I was really in denial about shipping Bellark because I was like 
I was like, I can't, you know, like, I, I can't, I just can't do that. I can't give in. But then I finally did. But I think it was in that moment where I was like, oh, crap, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, think it. For, I got no chance. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> <laughs> it was over before it started. I think for, for me, the, I had uh, in some ways sort of a similar journey because I just, I, I intensely disliked Kane for the first couple episodes. And I was absolutely convinced until we found out that it wasn't sh- true that he had been the one who was trying to have Jaha mm-hmm. killed. Like I was, I was like yeah. the whole time I was like, it's, it's obviously this guy. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Motherfucker is trying to like, he's the Jafar. <laughs> he's trying to like steal the throne. You know, yep, yep. I know who this guy is. Um, so I was very resistant. Um, but I, um, you know, as a good Catholic, I, I love a redemption arc. Um, so, you know, so around the cooling, I started to sort of like warm to him a little bit, but I think the first moment where where I was like really captivated by their relationship with each other was when um, when he like crawls through the the heating vent to like rescue all the survivors after the explosion, um, and he finds Abby still alive and like and the first thing that he does is he kind of like sits next to her and like pulls her into his arms and like physical contact between those two characters who we've only seen mostly like fighting with each other, like what I liked about it was it sort of opened up this whole little picture of like you know, these people know each other really well. And there's like all yeah. of this history. Mm-hmm. And like, maybe at one point they were friends. Like it, mm-hmm. it just sort of was like this little tiny sneak peek into like, there's so much backstory between these people that the first thing that he would do is like hug her and like comfort her. Like you're okay. Um, yeah. So that was probably the first one. And then the one that I think is, is where I was like, okay, you guys are in love and you should kiss. Um, was <laughs> I, um, I really, 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 I'm like super deeply emotionally attached to the conversation that they have when he's trapped under the rubble uh, in yes. season two. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both, both just in terms of as like a, a piece of the show's overall story and like hearing people kind of unpack all of these moral questions and the way that I always have really liked how. Kane understands Clark so well, sometimes better than her mom does, because he can kind of see her at a little bit more of a distance. And um, but but watching like watching tiny Paige Churko with like a piece of rebar trying to pry boulders <laughs> off of his leg, I was like, all right, this is these are mine. Yes, like <laughs> if you they just, don't fall in love, I'm gonna pry boulders off of my heart. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That was such Amazing. a great scene. Like that whole that That's, whole little thing so of them good. in that episode was awesome. I love it. I love yeah. it so much. I think that it was, was the really moment. That was the moment when I sort of like because I had sort of like I went back and forth on Abby and Kane and through the, my first watch in season one and two, the first half of season two for a while because you know like so you know, Kane would kind of like he'd be great and then he'd shock lash Abby and then right and and, and you're like oh, yeah. yeah and but like, like the Capulets at the Montagues exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But then that scene where I was where I was like, okay, all right, I love these guys. I'm ride or die. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Love it. Yep. Love it. Uh, question seven from Zenat Kwan at Zena Z-E-N-Z-E-E-N-A-K-W-O-N. Zena Kwan. If you were to body swap with one character on the hundred, who would it be? Your favorite drink while watching the hundred? And did you ever play the drinking game? Maybe meet again while watching the show. If not, will you? <laughs> um 
So the last answer to the last question first, she messaged us about this. We have not played the drinking game with the hundred. I am not I'm not averse to it, but we always watch the show twice so we can like podcast about it. So I feel like I would never want to be like drunk while watching it in case I would like miss something. Um Yeah. But uh my and I I don't people have asked this before, like I don't I can't concentrate on food and snacks while I watch this show. Like I, like I, some TV you can like eat popcorn or ice cream while you're watching it. And I'm just like all of my attention. Like if I make a cup of tea, I will within two minutes, I will forget that it's there. Like I'm just like, yeah. I can't. I don't understand how like, anyone to I, eat So I don't, I don't really show. have, like I'm literally just like clutching my hands to my chest the whole time. No, me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can't even, even the focus of like putting a handful of popcorn from the bowl into my mouth is like too much distraction for me. Yeah. While I need to be like, what's going to happen. Oh my God. Right, exactly. um, so yeah, I don't have a really good answer for, for either of those two. Um, body swap. I would say, I mean, everyone is stupidly, amazingly beautiful. Um, I would probably go with um, maybe it's tough. Yeah. Um, I would, um, I'm going to say Chelsea. Um, nice. I, I think, I think Chelsea is like, like she's so like, she's so ripped and she's so like powerful and then her hair is amazing and she's totally adorable. <laughs> so yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I was I'm going to pick Chelsea. I was looking at this from a different angle and I'm trying to think of who gets physically injured the least. <laughs> over the course of the show. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, which is actually a really hard question to answer, <laughs> but Yep. Um man. <laughs> I think I think honestly Miller seems to have come out uh, yeah. the least mm-hmm. scathed. Also, he gets to make out with Jackson. <laughs> uh, I'm assuming. I I may so may not, confirm may or or deny. Not. May or may, uh, not. may or may not, but if you if that's a reason why, I would say that's you know a very exciting reason. <laughs> so yeah, I would body swap with Miller. Nice. I'll let him know. That was fun. Hi, Jared. Love yes. you. Tell tell Jared. Oh, I'll tell him. I I I he's texting me right now. I'm like, Hi, Jared. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. If he texts me, I text him back right away. <laughs> he's my babe. He is. Uh, that's great. Miller and Chelsea. Good, good answers. Good, good Alberta kids. Love yes, it. That's right. That's right. Yes. We just want to be Canadian right, push, deep down. <laughs> uh, who does it? Right? We good people. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question eight from at the hundred crew. What season long storylines like Mount Weather, Ali, Prem, Faya, Allegis, factions and themes would you like the hundred to explore in the future seasons? Um, duh. Cadigan. Becca and Cadigan's yes. backstory is yeah. always the answer to that question. We are obsessed with Bill Cadigan and Becca, and we oh, want to know everything yes. about their lives and how they met and what happened between them. And did Bill Cadigan actually murder her? Because I'm convinced that he did. Yep. So that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm cool. going gonna, gonna to just 100% second everything that Aaron said. I There's no such thing as too much Bill Cadigan yeah. slash too much Becca backstory for me in this show. We would fully, like, if... if <laughs> If Jason listens to this, like, if you need extra money to make a Cadigan and Becca, like, web series, we will, like, we will go fund me that shit. Like, we yeah, will raise yeah. that money for you. We will <laughs> nice. back that Kickstarter. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. 
Love it. <laughs> I would just like to see like the grounders form. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, like how did it, how did that theology begin? How did like Becca's pure science get morphed into this hierarchical yeah. twelve clan religious structure? How did, like how, how did twelve worked. clans with the symbols from Cadigan's uh, Second Dawn? Like the, yeah. the clans have those symbols. Like how did that happen? How did like did they did one or both of them have some hand in creating um, uh, Trigetta slang? Like, is there a reason why they had to have like a, a code language? Is it because of that's what, like I want to know it all. I want to know everything. Yeah, yeah, love it. <laughs> Question nine from Desi- from Denise at DC Jeffrey. What is the weirdest or craziest present you've ever given each other? Well, of course, need the story behind it. Also, wonder if the receiver has the same answer as the giver. And what is the most treasured gift you've ever received from each other? Again, stories are welcome. Aw, thank you, Denise. Denise is wonderful. Um, she, I think she, did she make you, I think she made you Reese Puffs. She's uh, the Reese Puffs mom. Oh, yeah. yes. yes. Oh, I love Denise. Yes. Yes. Denise they is, made me Reese. They made me Reese Puffs Nanaimo bars. Yes, we that's heard. right. That's right. Yes. And now yes. I'm a little sick. I would love to have a batch of Reese Puffs Nanaimo bars as pleasure food right now. But my God, Denise, they were the best. Yes, <laughs> Denise is wonderful. As is her daughter Robin, who does aficionados uh, with our friend. Yes, uh, aficionados. Yeah, both of those. Those are such gem gem people. They I can't are. even love them. We love yeah. them. Yeah. Um. So I. I think for my like favorite gift that I ever gave Claire um, is uh, for her birthday last year. Um, I think it was. Yeah. Um, so we, my husband and I, we went uh, to a flea market in Nashville and we found a commemorative uh, Richard and, and Mr. and Mrs. R- uh, Richard Nixon plate. Um, <laughs> like this totally kitschy, like early seventies commemorative president and Mrs. Lincoln plate. And I got that for Claire, um, because it is like perfect <laughs> kitsch and also Richard Nixon. And I think that's my favorite thing that I've ever got. Amazing. I think I, um, I, I love that. The one that I was thinking of, because I was just looking at it the other day is the, um, I think it was maybe three or four birthdays ago. You gave me that print that I had framed and have hanging in my bathroom with a picture of this like crazy eyed, like an ostrich kind of bird. And the caption is dance like you're trying to kill a man. And I just really treasure those words. Um, Amazing. That's probably my favorite gift that you've ever given me. And I think my favorite gift that I've ever given you was I was very pleased with the, um, box of stuff that I assembled for your wedding present. It was all like, uh, like yeah. vintage and retro kitchen stuff. But I went yeah. to this, I was living in New York at the time. And I went to this, um, like museum of, um, uh, like Americana. And they had like a whole book of like, like a thing of like paper placemats that were all pictures of like old now closed and defunct diners. Mm-hmm. Um, and my favorite crazy gift that I almost bought you and didn't. And then when I came back to the garage sale to buy it the next day, it was gone. Um, which I've never forgiven myself. Cause it was like four years ago. Um, there's this house near the neighborhood where I grew up, um, where it's one of those houses that has like 500,000 million, like 
lawn ornaments on the yard. Like the house looks like it's owned by a hoarder and they have the most <laughs> next level, amazing garage sales. My brother bought a pair of iron battle axes there one oh time. God. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Um, and, uh, and it's like two blocks down from this church that has like a big, um, Greek Orthodox, like food celebration festival every year. So it's kind of like a family tradition that like we go to the Greek festival and stuff ourselves in a copita and then we go buy crazy shit at the crazy crap house. And they had um, like a whole box that was like some somebody in like the 1950s or something had like taken a cross country road trip and stolen a menu from every diner that they went to. Oh and so it was God. this whole like um, I think it might have been it might have been like a Route 66 trip. Um, oh I didn't like map it out like so but it was like all these like authentic, you know, 25 cent blue plate specials, nickel coffee, and it was like there was diners and there was like old Chinese food places, like all all these and the me- menus were like in pristine condition. And this lady yeah. was selling the whole thing for like five dollars. And I didn't have any cash, and I was like, Oh my god, this is amazing. Aaron and Jordan will die. This is incredible. You could walk <laughs> for a whole room in this. And then I went home to get my cash and drop off the battle axes that I had to carry home for Colin. And then <laughs> I came back and the menus were gone and I was oh, like, no. Ugh. My, I just never gotten over. Jordan would those damn husband, battle axes. So my yeah. husband collects um, uh, like 20th century ephemera. So like all kinds of stuff. He has tons of menus. He would have died to have those. He has like yeah. literally thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of postcards, like motel postcards. Um, and not just like big, like chain motels, but like little mom and pop places, like all these, all these crazy Whoa. ones. Um, recently he started collecting, um, Soviet pocket calendars. Uh, <laughs> yes. Like little pocket sized calendars from the former Soviet union. Um, most of them advertise like insurance companies in the Ukraine. Um, and also, I mean, just all sorts of other crazy stuff. He just got a contract to do a book, um, of, uh, in the early 20th century. So this is like after, they started, it started being relatively cheap to print photos on paper, but before newspapers often had photos, um, there were all these like kind of fly-by-night companies that would pop up and it became a thing. Anytime there was any kind of like big disaster, like a fire or a natural disaster or something like that, people would take photographs of the disaster and then they would print them on postcards. Um, they're called real photo postcards because they're actually like, you know, like not reproductive, but they were like the photos were printed onto the postcards and then people would like send them to each other across the country. It was kind of a way to, you know, like share images of things. So there's like postcards, these, these disaster postcards of like the San Francisco earthquake of 1905 and like there are postcards of floods and there's postcards. Some of them are like really macabre. Like they'll have pictures of like the morgue with like bodies <laughs> stacked up and it'll say like, these Whoa. are the bodies that died in like X fire and stuff like that. Um, yeah. so, so he's doing a book, uh, right. He's working on a book right now of about disaster postcards um, from the East coast. It has all these. So like basically like every time, you know, I come home, I get off, you know, I leave work and he tells me like, today I read about like this giant fire that nobody remembers where <laughs> people died in like this horrific way. And I'm like, oh, neat. <laughs> I can't wait to meet this man. Yes. <laughs> the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> really is. Honestly, that guy on that commercial has nothing on this man. It's true. It's totally true. Uh, congratulations uh, to you. Yeah. <laughs> I locked that down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, what about Ellen Nice's present, right? Oh, it was nice, like yeah, most treasured. Most meaningful. 
Mm. I would say I I really love our princess mechanic best friend necklaces that yeah, you got us. I, oh, I that's cute. Yeah, we have. So one of the necklaces says I choose you first, and the other one says I'm awesome. Um, so Claire has which one? Claire has the I'm awesome, and I have I choose you first. And they that's and they good. match, and so we wore them at Unity Days. Yes. Aww. And whenever I miss Claire a lot or like I need and I'm like having a rough day or I have something tough going on and I just like need to have her feel like I have her with me, I wear my necklace. Me too. Aww. You guys are the cutest. <laughs> we love each other a lot. You, you gotta really have a bestie. In your life, you yeah, gotta have a bestie. it's true. It's true. I found Jared and my life became uh, exponentially better. It became life. Aww. So, so I'm happy you guys, uh, I'm happy you guys got besties. Yes. Yeah. Um, you can have, from Lindsay, you can have a friend love of your life. You exactly. have to. Oh, yes, for sure. Absolutely. It's a necessity. Yes. Um, I, it's just they, they fill all the uh, other holes. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> In your life. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Number 10 from Lindsay at Proffle Powell. I'd love to hear you ask each other what's your favorite set piece slash prop of the series and what's your favorite line of the series. And two... Have either of you connected with another TV show as much as The 100? No. Would you ever consider doing a pod for another show? Thanks, ladies, for letting us be involved in your two-year anniversary. I'm so grateful for all the work you tirelessly put into this. You're both amazing. I agree. Aw. Thank you, Lindsay. Okay. So prop, line, TV show, other podcast. TV show. Wow, nice. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I would say probably my favorite, um, my favorite prop, I... Hmm. Um, I, I really, I probably have to go with, um, the, I really like the flame. I think the, all the, the alley tech and that whole alley sort of aesthetic is really, is really neat. Although, wait, no, actually, why am I saying that? We know my favorite prop is it's the vases. It's the alley. (laughs) When Aaron and I were recapping the episode where, where we get like the tour of Allie's house and um, office for the first time, we had this whole hilarious exchange where she was like very preoccupied with like, factual logical things like who is cleaning that pool and how have all those cans of food not like expired from botulism and I was like oh my god I want every vase in Becca's house and she was like I didn't even notice the vases and I, I was like no the vases, the vases are amazing yeah. like Claire her was interior like, decor was like on point yeah oh Becca yeah. Becca Becca don't mess around man she all about that fashion you know what I'm saying yeah that's right oh yeah. my god Becca's whole aesthetic is like amazing. So I would, yeah, I would say, I would say Becca's vases is my prop. Um, my favorite line in the show is uh, when when Kane and Lincoln and Sinclair are locked up together before they're going to be executed, and Kane says, "We don't break, we don't sh- show fear. Death can be an act of unity too. The people will remember." And it was just this like devastating, like like it's it's such a like hopeful moment in this time of tragedy like i want to believe that my death can mean something um and and i just like i mean and beautifully delivered and and all three of those actors are so great and um so that's the one that i just like like they just really kind of i mean there's so many good lines in this show but i think that's probably my my most favorite um and then that's a really good one and then my other so in terms of any other show that i've loved of course, I don't love anything this much, but comparably, um, my my probably first great obsessive television love um, 
was the West Wing. I really, really loved the West Wing. I, I it has a lot of sort of structural similarities to the hundred in terms of like this really deep and rich bench of supporting characters whose lives and backstories are fleshed out and are really interesting and and that you can mine really fascinating story by like shuffling the deck and having two characters who've never interacted have like a whole scene yeah together and all of a sudden it kind of opens itself up um and and also like a really extraordinary roster of of diverse women which i really love um I don't know that I would want to host a podcast on it just because there's an existing podcast where a couple of the cast members are like hosting it and like they like they do a great job and I don't I don't know that I have anything to say that's smarter than what than what Joshua Molina has to say. I think I don't know if this is what Aaron would say, but if we were ever <laughs> I think if we were ever gonna pod do another podcast together, like after, you know, after the show ends someday, I would like us to go back and revisit the early seasons of America's Next Top Model that because that was, was like our say. first sort of joint joint television obsession. Yes. Yeah, that is, what and I we have many thoughts on that. Yes, yeah, cool. Okay. I, that would be cool because it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a series; it would be a, a real life kind of thing that's happened. That would be cool. Yeah, yeah, um, and it, like you know, we watched like you know in college, and then like for a few the few years after college, we would get together and watch Top Model every week. Um, mm, yep, and it's really interesting to go back. You know, it's a show that like the early seasons in some ways have aged very poorly um, and in some ways have aged very well. And so I think it'd be really, it'd be fascinating to revisit and also really fun because they're just like bonkers and just get more yeah. and more bonkers as the seasons go along. And yeah. uh, we actually, <laughs> Claire, do you remember this? So um, I think it was, uh, it was still the, the hiatus before season three, right? You came out to visit me for Thanksgiving. Yeah. And we plotted out, we plotted out an entire, um, like, the hundred America's Next Top Model alternate universe. Um, Whoa. With, like, we, we had, like, the theme for the season, which was, like, sciences and technology. And uh, we had, like, every episode, like, blocked out, like, who was going to win and who was going to get sent home. It was very, oh very elaborate. Oh, my God. Yes. But and, like, really... and, like pulling, pulling, like, plot points from canon. Like, yeah. Indra's a fashion designer and Octavia <laughs> is the model that she chooses to, like, mentor. Yeah. And then there's some, like, 11th hour thing where, like, Lexa betrays Clark at the last minute and Clark has to, like, scramble to think of a solution. Um and I like, think there was you know, also, like, like, there was a week where um, they had to do, like, a lingerie photo shoot, and Bellamy and Lincoln were, the, like, the male models who came in. And there was, yeah, 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 yeah. There was some backstory where, like, Bellamy was a model, and, and Octavia wanted to be a model, but he wouldn't let her because he was, like, overprotective. And so she, like, she signed up for the show without telling him, and they haven't spoken since. So they, like, bring on Bellamy as this, like, you know, there's, like, all, all this drama. And then, of course, she has, like, crazy chemistry with Lincoln. Yeah, it was really, <laughs> it was very and elaborate. Then yeah, we had a whole. Oh, and the judges are. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, so Tyra Banks obviously plays herself because no one else is capable. But um, in place of Nigel Barker, noted British fashion photographer, would be Kane. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. Abby would be the Paulina Poroskova. And then they have their own kind of torrid backstory. Yes. Like they used to, like, you know, like hang out together at Studio 54 back in the 80s um, and had this, like, long, like, torrid affair. Um, and then Murphy. Murphy and Murphy? Jaha were Miss J. J and Mr. J. Yeah, so so Jaha is uh -oh. Miss J. Amazing. And Murphy was Mr. J. And then, um, but the best part about this, like the most fun part about this was 
coming up with the like ridiculous Tyra like <laughs> modeling <laughs> modeling slash science puns. So my favorite was my favorite was the Smizenberg uncertainty principle, which is you know smizing, right? Yeah. Uh, so the Smizenberg uncertainty principle, which says like. The eyes say smile, but the mouth says not, you know? So it's like, which one is which? And it's like, Tyra has this like whole like crazy, like quasi theory uh, about the Smeisenberg uncertainty principle. There's another, came up with another one. Smeisenberg principle. <laughs> Smeisenberg uncertainty principle. Is it a smile? Wait, is it not a smile? You'll never know. <laughs> we, oh we put God. a lot of thought into like, you know, every once in a while Tyra would like arbitrarily decide on like a message or a theme for this season, which she always kind of, understood imperfectly and so yeah. like yeah Ty, like tyra's perception of herself as a person who deeply understands environmental issues for the year they did like the green season and then yeah. she's just sort of like she learns a fact kind of like half accurately and then spins a whole theme out of it and so we were trying to figure out like what are like aspects of science that tyra would like tyraify and like completely oh, misunderstand oh. and just turn I just remembered. So the final runway challenge, we decided because this is um, so the the uh, collider. What was it called? The large hadron. Oh, the large hadron collider. Yeah. Yes. So this yeah, is like we were it. coming up with this right around the time that they they. So so Tyra hears about the large hadron collider, but the only thing that she understands about it is that you have two you know particles going towards each other really fast and then they smash. So the like theme for the final runway yeah. challenge is that the models have to walk towards each other on this very narrow like runway and like avoid smashing yeah. into each other like a large hadron collider. We <laughs> 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 had, had a lot of fun with this. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, oh my god, that's so! <laughs> I love. Oh my god, how I open the Google Doc. The, the theory of general tyrativity. Oh. <laughs> oh. 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 And then e, e equals m c squared was the male model. I, I went. I had to go find the Google Doc so we could get the chapter titles. So the the male model episode um, was e equals m c squared, which Tyra translates to energy equals man candy times two. Yes. <laughs> because. <laughs> We felt really strongly that Tyra wouldn't know the difference between times two and squared. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I would wa I would, you'd have to watch the show. You would yeah. have to, you'd totally have oh. to. Oh my God. Yeah. <sighs> um, anyway, that's... <laughs> I'm trying to think of chemistry puns with mixed with fashion. I'm going to be doing that all day. Yeah. If you think of good ones, let us. let us know. <laughs> yeah. I will yeah. 100%. <laughs> Excellent. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, great. You guys got to put this into fruition, guys. You have to make this happen. <laughs> we do. We have to go back and actually do that. So it was fun. Um, so, okay. What was the question for me again? Quote, prop, quote, and other show prop that you quote. Okay. Um, I would say prop. Other quote that you would do, like, a, a podcast for. Yeah, yeah. Um, prop. Like, that's tough. I don't know if I can pick one prop. I would say... Like everything on the uh, on the Becca's lab set from season four was like amazing, and everything in mm -hmm. Becca's office was amazing. Um, but I also really, really enjoyed uh, <laughs> the shield that Roan had um, oh, yeah. in the in the concrete oh, yeah. because it had like bicycle tires on the edge, and for some reason that just like really tickled me. Um, <laughs> in addition to being actually like very, I think strategically wise, you know, because like it. I don't know, like it made a lot of sense, but I also just really enjoyed that. Like the props team does such a fantastic job, I think, 
across the board, but especially with sort of thinking about like what materials are available or would be available to be repurposed in all sorts of ways. So like the guy with the license plate armor was really cool too. Like I can't pick one cause they're all so good. Um, favorite line. Um, one I come back to a lot or one I think about a lot is, um, from day trip, uh, episode eight, season one, um, which is, what the hallucination of Jake says to Clark, um, forgiveness isn't about what people deserve. Um, I really like that quote. And I think about that a lot and yeah. just in terms of like, you know, thinking about like forgiveness about is about like, it's really about you as the person who's doing the forgiving and, and whether, you know, whether that's something that you need to do or want to do or don't, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't really come down to whether the other person deserves it, quote unquote. It's about you. And so I just thought that was like a really, there's just like such a really profound um, moment. And I love, yeah, yeah. I love Jake. A really important moment for everybody, I think. Yeah, actually. I think so. And like also like thematically really important on the show, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like that one. I come back to that a lot. Um, although I also come back to, even though like in the context of the show itself, it doesn't work out, but the um, slay your demons, fear is a demon, slay your demons mm-hmm. um, uh, thing. Um, uh, I come back to that one a lot. Uh, slay your demons? Like, who, who said that again? Bellamy said that to Charlotte, who then... Oh, who then, oh, wow. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but then it, like, killed Welts. Yeah, yeah. It like it uh it it inspired <laughs> yeah it did not work out because it inspired her to stab Wells in the neck. It always comes back to Wells. It always comes back <laughs> to Wells. Um, but like when all I, roads know, lead to Wells. When I when I'm feeling like really anxious, um or scared about like writing, it's helpful. I'm like you know mm-hmm. fear is a demon, slay your demon. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's a good one. Um, I think in terms of oh uh other shows that I have been as as attached to, um, for me, it was definitely the first one was the X-Files, which I was like absolutely obsessed with when I was in middle school and high school. Um, to the (laughs) point where like I had my, I, I had like my hair in a bob and my hair is like, is red. It's not that like, like bright, bright red, but it's pretty red. So like I, I wore my hair in a bob for years because I wanted to be Scully. Um, (laughs) and the best story about that is for my 13th birthday, yeah. Um, I wrote an episode of the X-Files and then for my birthday party, I, uh, made my friends, like we filmed it. So I got to play Scully and my brother was Mulder, but he didn't want to be in it. So I had to write him out after at like a scene. Um, <laughs> and like my stepdad was in it and my friends were in it. And, like we spent the whole birthday party, like two days filming this little short episode of the X-Files. Amazing. And it was it was awesome. <laughs> it was you guys so have had fun. you guys have had the most fun childhood yeah. <laughs> slash college experiences I think I've ever heard. It was great. I need it to, sounds amazing. Somewhere that VHS still exists, and I need to find it. And <laughs> okay, so you're releasing these letters, and you're releasing VHS tapes. Yeah, They're yes. happening. Yes, I wish I will. I will find the VHS tape, and I will get it onto YouTube, and then everyone can see. My brilliant X Files episode that I wrote when I was twelve. <laughs> Honestly, I hope when they do X Files season fifty-five, it's gonna come out. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> They're just gonna be like, we ran out of ideas. Can we have your script? And I'll be like, yeah, <laughs> go for yeah, it. Yeah, gonna do it. <laughs> um, 
It didn't involve aliens. It was about a teenage girl who was accidentally murdering people with her mind when she when she got mad. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> was it inspired by a true story? <laughs> well, was that that girl based inspired on Inspired by real people I wanted to kill with my mind. I, right, that was my I question. Did, I, yeah. did, I did kill my stepdad in it. He was one of the victims, Aww. which might have oh. been a little... I mean, my stepdad is lovely. I love my stepdad, but I was, like, really mad that my mom remarried for, like, because I was 12. Um, so there yeah. might Very, be... very 12-year-old response. That yes. makes sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I think you could definitely psychoanalyze that for, you know, what, what 12-year-old Aaron... Oh, and then there was, like, a, there was like the dad, the stepdad was the one character who died, and I think there was, like, a bully at school who died, and I was also being bullied. So, yeah, it was definitely very much a kind of, like... Um, Wish fulfillment. A telepath. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I uh, was very much a telepath at 12. Yes, absolutely. Based on a true story. Um, and then what? another show I would do a podcast on. I mean, my answer was definitely Top Model. Um, okay, good. Another one that I would be interested in. I really, really like The Expanse. Which is a oh yeah we've talked about this yeah Yeah. like I really like it's really 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 good it's really interesting I feel like they 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 um uh there's like a lot of stuff in there that I think that I would I could you know talk for three hours at a time about (laughs) yeah um but I definitely that won't you know that won't happen I can't we can't do more than one podcast at a time Um, no I think I mean we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe when our I think books it, are done. Yeah, when our books yes. are done. It's a great yeah. idea. I would I would love to do a, uh, another one of these after uh after the um books are out and read because yes, then yes. that's just a I mean y'all talk about our show so much we should talk about your stuff as, yeah. as much as we can. I would love that. Spot. Absolutely. Yeah. That would be great. So yeah. All right, question answer. 11 from uh Danisam at Sam's Jazz FF. She wants those celebrity, embarrassing celebrity encounter stories. Oh, God. <laughs> I definitely said this one on Twitter because I wanted to make Claire tell her Mars Rover. Oh, God. Story, okay. Which is All right. hilarious. I can go first if you want to. You go first. Okay. You my story first. is much shorter and it takes place in college. So my, I think, sophomore year in college, um, there was like – Big, the big exciting news, and you have to know, our college is tiny. There's like 1,200 students, and it's in Walla Walla, Washington, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's like four hours from Portland, five hours from Seattle, four hours from Boise. It's just like in the middle of Walla nowhere. Walla. I already love this story. Walla Walla. <laughs> so my sophomore year in college, um, there was like buzz going around the campus that uh, Mandy Patinkin's son had transferred to our college that year. In Nigo Montoya's son? Um, Inigo Montoya's mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. and, and that and that Inigo Montoya himself was somewhere on campus moving his son into his dorm. So uh, at the time, our our like student union building was this teeny tiny little building. Like the, I think this was the last year it was around, they tore it out and built a new one, but there's this like itty bitty just like postage stamp of a building. And there's like a little sort of restaurant grill thing in there. Um, but I mean, it was, you know, the whole thing, like the line where you got your food and the seating and everything was probably like, maybe the room was like 12 by 12 max. It was just like this itty bitty little room, but there was like a kind of like, sort of like half wall divider thing. Um, you know, so like you couldn't see, you couldn't necessarily see the cash register if you were sitting down to eat, but it wasn't like a full wall. So, so sound traveled. 
So me and some friends were sitting there talking about the fact that, you know, Mandy Patinkin and his son were on campus. And we've been just been sitting there like, you know, just like, whatever, like 19-year-olds just thought we were hilarious sitting around going, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. I killed my father. <laughs> Prepare to die. And then laughing our heads off and like saying it over yeah. and over and over again. And then suddenly I look up and around the corner comes Mandy Patinkin. His face like totally red. Like not making eye contact with anybody, just carrying a bottle of orange juice. And he goes over and he sits down at this table right next to us and just like stares at his orange juice bottle. And we're like, oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) And we're just like put our heads down. And I think we just like weren't even finished eating. We just like picked up our food and shoved it in the, you know, in the like trash can and ran away as fast as we could. (laughs) So that was At least you got to meet him. I I didn't get to meet him. I that whole weekend, every place that I went to, everyone was like, "Oh my god, you just missed Mandy Patinkin!" Like eighteen <laughs> different times. It was yeah. furious. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh my, Mandy, but just but the fact that he heard you say his line is probably one of the greatest things of my entire life. Yes, yes. <laughs> I want to just hear me say it, and then I'll run away. Like and that's not, just and not just once, but many, many times, like at least fifteen <laughs> times in a row. <laughs> this, he's got to know that sweet. Like he, not only did he do that, the fact that he's had such an amazing career after that, like yeah. you know, you'd hear about Nico Montoya, and he would be that in lore. But but he he could sing, he could do everything. I mean, I that guy is he's a jack of all trades. He's amazing. And I remember, like you know, because I was when I was growing up, I only knew him as Nico Montoya. You know, like in my head, he was Nico Montoya. And I yeah. remember seeing Dick Tracy when I was like whatever 10 11 when One of my came favorite out. movies. Me and Jared just watched that last month. Oh yeah. Oh. And yeah. Just hold up, I haven't seen it in years. I was ride or die for Breathless Mahoney. Oh my god, I love Breathless <laughs> oh, Mahoney. Um, so good. A gem. But he sings in that movie and I remember just like I remember seeing it and going like, "Holy shit. Inigo Montoya can sing?" Like it was just like <laughs> mind blown. It was crazy. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Amazing. He he is I I have his Roger, his Rodgers and Hammerstein tribute album and he did the original Sunday in the Park with George which I'm just like yeah. oh god well and I, yeah so Sondheim wrote the songs for Dick Tracy so I mean I, I guess like at the time I didn't really think I didn't about know that. that yep yep they're Sondheim songs so it makes sense that of course like he would be in that singing Sondheim yeah he's like a Sondheim guy oh my god it's amazing just for Christmas this year I bought my brother uh uh, uh original replica Dick Tracy watch Ooh. Actually, the original, like you can, you can buy it online. You can buy the legit replica watch, and uh, I've been wanting to for years, and I never was able to. Uh, and this year, I'm like, I'm getting it for him, and I'm pretty sure he shed a tear. So, oh, I have a, brother. I have a huge soft spot for that movie. I loved that movie growing up. Oh, it's amazing, and I don't know why. Like, I don't know why it didn't. Uh, it's not more talked about. I thought it's yeah. one of the most. It had. It did exactly what it wanted to. It's basically like, mm-hmm. it's like a Roger Rabbit meets Sin City. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's a really yes. good way of putting it. Roger Rabbit, also another one of my, like, formative movies. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, I consider myself to be Roger Rabbit. Uh, <laughs> because there's, like, that, sh- that, scene, that shave and a haircut scene in that yes. movie. Oh, God, brilliant. <laughs> that's who I am as a person. I yes. cannot let a joke go. I can't let anything go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. So, like, I said like the girl that i would ever have to marry would have to be a mixture of um jessica rabbit just because she'd have to be able to put up with me <laughs> Meg, uh lola bunny from um from 
uh, uh, Space Jam mm. and Morticia oh. Adams. Oh, oh my really, God, Morticia Adams. That's a good mix. That's a good mix. That's, yeah, it's because just they just I it has to be able to put up with somebody that's like like Lola Bellini has put up with bugs. Yeah. Uh, Morticia and Gomez. Gomez is loud and crazy, and I want that whatever. Um, uh, Jessica Rabbit has to put up with Roger Rabbit, and Maggie Smith is just like the greatest of all time. <laughs> yes. True. That's an that's an excellent combination of of like wife characteristics. I yes. fully support all of those. Yeah. Right. Okay, Claire, you put it off long enough. Uh, yeah, do it. it. <laughs> all right. So, uh, okay. Um. So in I think in 2013, I um I was workshopping a um a play that I wrote at the Pasadena Playhouse in California, and. Um, and the play is about, um, it's, it's called Dear Galileo, and it's uh, sort of three different stories about different, um, three different pairs of fathers and daughters whose relationship all in some way is kind of like shaped by or, or informed by the conflict or overlap between religion and science. So Galileo and his daughter is one story. Um, there's like a creationist uh, kind of pundit in the South and his young daughter who really loves science and their conflict is another story. And then there's a young woman um, whose father works at the Vatican Observatory and goes missing and she flies out there to find him and ends up kind of working with her father's research assistant who's a Jesuit priest. And then there's a character who's an astrophysicist who kind of weaves all the stories together and comes out before each scene and kind of gives a snippet of an astrophysics lecture and, and whatever sort of principle of science he's talking about sort of um, mirrors or connects to what happens to the characters in the story. So when he's talking about um, black holes, then that leads into a scene where we like kind of discover one character's dark secret and um, things like that. So this is very much about, I did a ton of research as I was writing it, um, was, you know, reading a lot of Stephen Hawking. Um, it's, it's very much informed by a brief history of time and, um, things like that. So, um, so I had been, I workshop it in Portland. I wrote it on, on a writing residency, um, in Connecticut. And then it had had a couple of readings and workshops in Portland. And, uh, and then a friend of mine who worked at Pasadena Playhouse, uh, got it on the desk of the woman who does the programming for, um, for their kind of season. And because, you know, they're, they're LA based, they get like way bigger, fancier actors to come in and like do their, you know, readings and stuff. Then, um, then I certainly could here in Portland. So um, Robert Picardo, who played the hologram doctor on Voyager, was in it, and he played the science professor, um, uh, an amazing character actor named Lawrence Pressman, who's been in everything in the whole entire world you could imagine, played Galileo. So the cast was great. Um, and the thing that I learned through Robert Picardo is that like every famous nerd in California are a they're all friends with each other. They all live in Pasadena. And they all like play poker together at Will Wheaton's house. Like Bill Nye the Science Guy, <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson, every guy who's ever been on Star Trek. Like they're all bros. Um, Amazing. So, uh, so when, and I'm always like, I'm a huge like lifelong Star Trek fan. And so when they said Robert Bricardo was going to be in this show, I was like, oh my God. Um, and so, so like all, so I, I say this to, to inform you that like all of my energy in terms of like managing my like chill level around celebrities was was absorbed by the effort of trying to like be cool working every day for a full week with Robert Picardo and and behave like a playwright and like have some like authority and whatever in that room and like act like a fucking adult instead of just being like oh my god I love you on Star Trek you know like, you're from my television <laughs> um, 
So like that's where like all of my energy went there. Um, but the thing that I that I learned that was really neat was like you know so he's friends with like you know every famous nerd in the whole entire world and so he invited like um his you know he invited all his buddies to come and like see the show he sent the script to neil degrasse tyson i think i don't know what he thought of it he never emailed back but like he has he has obtained a copy of my play um so it was crazy it was like he knows all these people that Um, that itself is like the biggest deal yeah oh my god totally nuts yeah like i could hardly i could hardly handle it um and so so i learned so he also had told me um, you know, he's friends with all of the guys that work at the NASA JPL because they're all also based in Pasadena too. Um, so, so he was like, um, you know, he's friends with everyone who was on, and this was like right after like the Mars rover landing had happened, like I think within a year or something before that. So it was like pretty recently where like, you know, the Mars rover team were like kind of superstars. Um, so I did not know that Boba Perdowski who, AKA Mars Rover Mohawk guy. Um, he's like, he, you know, he's friends with Will Wheaton and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Robert Ricardo and they all play poker together. Like he's in this kind of like potty. So, but I didn't know that at the time. So, yeah. um, so we, we did, we did two nights of public readings of this play and, and there was like a kind of post-show talk back afterwards. And, um, and so I think it was this, the first night, no, it was the second. Cause, uh, because my family was there and my siblings witnessed this. Um, <laughs> so, so we did, I forgot about that part. Um, so, so we did the kind of, um, this sort of post to talk back in, you know, people to ask questions about like, you know, like what's the research that you did on this play or whatever. And, um, and my brother, I get my film editor brother, um, he had come and he had brought a whole bunch of his friends to the show. And so there was kind of a whole like little corner of this little theme theater that was all just sort of like you know hipster bro looking dudes and I kind of had just assumed that everyone sitting in that corner were like people who had come with Christopher so um so this so this guy this like you know young bro guy around our age raised his hand and asked a question um and we kind of just like riffed back and forth on like um I think he was asking about the like what research I had done on telescopes because the arc of the story is a lot about the building of this giant Vatican telescope and so we talked about that and um we just had like a, like a cool, chill, like, you know, science nerd kind of conversation. And so then we all went over to the little room where they were having the like, um, you know, post-show reception thing. Um, and my my friend Evan, whose wife works at the theater, and she was the one that had kind of connected me with this reading series. He comes to me, he like grabbed my arm and he's like, I am so proud of you. And I was like, why? And he's like, I totally thought, he's like, I know how you get around famous people. And I totally thought you were going to have less children that and you like handled yourself so well um oh wait oh no sorry no i'm skipping ahead um so so uh posse of people who i would like who asked questions during the talk back they came over came over to the like reception room with us and so me and whoever this guy was were like chatting again as we were like getting our wine and stuff and again like you know like super just i'm assuming that he's my brother's friend um so just kind of continuing our same conversation before. So another comes over and he's cornering me and he's like praising me for like the level of chill that I'm exhibiting. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, that, that's, that's Mars Rover Mohawk guy. And I was like, what? He's what? Wearing, he's, wearing a, he's wearing a beanie. Like I couldn't see his like namesake Mohawk. He's just like, he's just like a handsome hipster guy who, yeah. I, who was sitting next to like in the row next to my brother. And I was like, oh, he's like, you know, he looks like a film Thank dude. Um, so yeah, so I was like, yeah, so I was like, oh my god, like 
thank, thank the good Lord that I didn't know. So what I should have done is left it there. I should have like, <laughs> like left oh, it alone. Oh, no. <laughs> yep. Yep. Just like continue talking to my friends, like, look, I'm a sophisticated playwright who knows a bunch of shit about astrophysics, and I'm completely chill around insanely famous scientists, la la la. Instead, <laughs> the choice I made <laughs> was that I like rushed back over there and I was like, You're Mars Rover Mohawk guy. And he was like, <laughs> No. Yes. In in this tone of voice, like We've spoken like six times. Like what, <laughs> girl? What? And he just and he was very polite, but I could sort of sense him kind of like backing away. Like, oh, she's a she crazy. She's one of those. I'm, she does. Yeah. So I was like, I was like, oh my god, you're amazing. I love you so much. You're the fucking coolest. Blah blah blah. Mars, whatever. And he was like, uh huh. Okay, thank you. Um. And then Evan came and like yanked me off stage with a giant white cane, Looney Tunes style. Um. But um. So so then so fortunately like I redeemed myself because they he and the other guy that he was there with um they stayed long enough to like you know kind of close down the party with us. So by the end it was like um me and a couple of the actors. My my brother and sister, um, and uh, uh, and the NASA JPL guys, just like standing around drinking our free wine and like hanging out and talking about like all kinds of nerdy stuff. So like I eventually recovered, and like we're friends on Instagram and stuff. Um, but it was it was a horrifying <laughs> moment because it was like you know like your brain kind of splits, and part of you is like the only sane thing for you to do right now is nothing. And then the chaos muppet part of your brain is like, but what if I just don't and make everything works? You know, you know, it was like it was like the part of your brain when you're in a crowded subway station and you're like, I could totally shove that guy in front of the I'm not going to, but I could, but I won't, but I could. You know, like that part of your brain where it's like like at yeah. any moment you're like, I could do something. Fuck. Yeah, or like anytime you're on like a like a, a ledge or a balcony or something, you have that moment of like I could jump, and then you're like, nope, nope, I not exactly. gonna do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you know, you know that you won't. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Right, like, you know that you won't because that part of your brain is like never in the driver's seat. But for this yeah. one moment, that self-destructive, crazy pants part of my brain just took over, and it was like, why don't you go? undo all the good work you did seeming like a chill smart lady and just go over there and be a total fucking moron in <laughs> front do of not the, do not yourself. the thing about nerds is and I'll tell you what it is being one is that we understand that the people that we like we want them to hear it for them we're not doing it because we want them to notice us we want them to know how cool they fucking are because of all the great stuff that they've done so we're willing to make ourselves look bad because of it if some people do it because they want them they want something for themselves or they want to look cool nerds just want somebody to know how much they've affected their life how exactly. they, yes. regardless of how it makes them look so never change always Aww. do it because people <laughs> have flowers while they can smell them always Aww. yell at people's faces that you like always <laughs> thank you i That's see I, I, feel very, I feel very seen and understood in this moment because like I wasn't trying to impress him like he already thought I was smart and he really liked my play like I was in but I was just like but I haven't screamed in his face that it's like you landed something on Mars that's amazing like, you like, wanted he, to know how cool he was because he deserved right? it and that's yeah right. 
Yeah. It was more so, of a moment um, of like, I did not properly appreciate how awesome it is that you're here. And we talked about my play because I didn't know who you were. But now that I do, this is awesome and amazing. It's important for me to know that I think you're cool. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and I'm sorry that if I was too cool on stage and made you feel like I didn't know who you were or didn't make you feel respected because I think you're the best. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get it and never stop. <laughs> Thank you. I, I hate cool people. I, yeah. I, I, if you, I, you know me, I never act yeah. cool intentionally by trade because I hate, I hate the intention of cool. If you think somebody's great and you walk up to them and you're like, hey man, what's up? How you doing, bro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, what's your name again? I hate people like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, scream in my face. Yeah. Well, I feel like when you, when you like things, it's inherently full vulnerable and there are, there are always going to be people who would so much rather not ever show that they like things or care about things because that puts you in a position where somebody could be like well I don't like that and then you feel bad and so it's very easy to just hate everything the or to just not care about everything and just have all those walls up exactly that's what it is the only reason you wouldn't tell somebody that they're awesome is because you're worried about how you're gonna look when it's not about you exactly exactly sure that person knows how cool they are and yeah. that's it yeah, never you, you get me. Yes. Yeah. I totally get it. Cause I yell in people's faces consistently. <laughs> <laughs> and I let everybody know how cool I think they are. And I don't, you know, I don't give a shit. Also just like, you know, having like passion for something and loving things is, is like, I think it's, it's appealing, you know, like you want to yeah. be like, I want to be around people who like love things in big ways and, yeah. you know, like, yep. and aren't afraid to be open about it and aren't afraid to be like, you know, like, like it's not cool. It's inherently not cool mm -hmm. to be super into something, I, but it's also yeah. really boring, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, like I grew up in like, I'm a child of the nineties. And so this whole kind of, you know, like young people culture where like, it's always been cool to like, Marvel and it's always been cool to like Star Trek for them, you know, because because those things kind of came back in like, you know, like when I was in middle school, I was like, you know, I was the only person that I knew who was like super excited about Star Trek, you know, like I, mm -hmm. I was Counselor Troy once yeah. for Halloween. And everyone gave me shit about it, except for like one boy two years younger who came as Captain Kirk and we like played with his tricorder at recess, you know, but like <laughs> everyone else was like, uh, I'm just being a, a sexy witch. What the hell are you doing? You know, like I just was like, like it wasn't it wasn't socially acceptable then to like anything. I mean, to, to well, like the things that you liked in that kind of an open way, especially geek culture or books or things like that. It was like the things you're supposed to like are like makeup and parties and boys and whatever. And so if you didn't, there was like a really high social cost to being like, I just want to talk about Star Trek and Shakespeare and like, <laughs> and I, cause I'm really interested in those things. Yeah. And I felt like outside of my own home with my parents and my siblings, like, you know, school and being around other kids my age felt like really vulnerable so yeah. I feel like now like like as an adult who's not you know scared of middle schoolers anymore I you know I feel like I really enjoy the freedom to be able to be like I really love this thing like I love this television so much that we're going to start a podcast and we're going to talk for three and a half hours about every single episode <laughs> because that's oh, how yeah. much like that's how interested in it we are you yeah. know and and I like feeling like I don't have to apologize for that like I did when I was 12. Yeah who do you is having more fun. Exactly. Yes. That's yes. all it's about. In your life, your choice, your decisions, who is having more fun? The person who it has to withhold how much they love something or the person who can in, 
endlessly talks about it and gets to love it all the time as much as they talk about. Like I, exactly. I just, I, that's like Roger Rabbit, Gomez Adams, Bugs Bunny, these characters, <laughs> they don't stop. And you should yeah. like, just because they love things, they go after them. And that's mm-hmm. what life is about. Mm-hmm. I like with your friends and you're sitting there talking about things that you love because it's just with your friends and you can be yourself. You're having so much more fun than when people go out and they're like, yeah, yeah, this is cool. Whatever, whatever. You have so much more fun like that. So make that every day all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. Yeah. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. (laughs) And you know, like it's one of those things where at the time I was mortified and I think like, it's hard to say. Like, I I feel like, you know, probably that, that I'm sure he's gone through phases where like, he just wants to get away from that because it's all he hears. But on the other hand, it's also like, I mean, like, how cool is it to have any iconic line associated with a character that you played? You know, like, like that yeah. was oh, like, yeah. so formative for all of us. Like, we all know, you know. Like, like a zeitgeist defining line of dialogue. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's going to think about that, um, in a, in like, months later and laugh. It's not exactly. going to be a thing where he's, oh, God. It is just, you know, it, it maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. But... I know I would. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, who doesn't love Inigo Montoya? <laughs> He's yeah. the best. Exactly. <laughs> Great. I love that story. All right. We have time for three more questions. And then uh, we have these. We have other questions specifically for you guys, which we are going to have to do on podcast number two. But we have three questions for the both of you that I would love to be able to finish before I have to yes. head. Excellent. Uh, so number 12. From Ashley, April M, at April M7739, who are your top 10 characters from the 100? Top 10. 10 top is like, should we, should we each do five? Yeah, 10 feels like a hard, yeah. okay. All right, you go first. Uh, <laughs> that's mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> top 10, okay. Um, I would say Bellamy, Clark, Raven. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> and then it's just like, you know, that the, like just picture a gif of like a whole bunch of people trying to run through a doorway all at once and getting stuck. Uh, <laughs> uh, Bellamy Clark Raven. Definitely. Those are like, those are like my top three. Um, and then after that, okay, Claire, that's my top three. You do your top three and then we'll do. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I would say my, um, my top three are D, um, Kane and Abby, Abby and then Kane, sorry, Ian. <laughs> um, Abby, <laughs> Abby and then Kane. And then I, I don't want to say people that are on your list just like, cause assume, assume that we like everyone and I'm gonna give um I'm gonna give a shout out to Indra. Ooh, good one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I like the adults. Yeah. <laughs> Team adults. Mm-hmm. Um okay, so then um I'm going to say uh I'm gonna say uh Lincoln and yeah. And, um, and I'm going to say Roan. Oh, those are good. Those are good. Um, I'm going to say Jackson, not just because Sachin's here, but (laughs) because I deeply love him. Um, excellent. And I'm going to say my, my 
sort of dark horse favorite that I hope that we get more of, even though she was in very, very little of it, is I really, really love Becca. Yes. Like, I, I yes. adore Becca. Yes. Yeah, um, I always want and, Rebecca. And I would love more of her. Yeah. So I feel like I would have to put her on my list too. Yes. Like, um, that's a good, that's a good list of 10. I have to give a shout out to uh, Erica Sierra for that. Uh, she was amazing the whole season, obviously, but that last scene where she played Becca and Allie um, yeah. was stupendous. Yes, uh, I, I love, I loved watching that. And I thought watching it, I'm like, wow, the amount of just, it was her spouting off the amount of like information tech jargon while being emotional at the same time, mm-hmm. Devin on the shoulder, Angel on the other side um, was phenomenal. And it was so cool to watch that. Yeah. So that shout out. He's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And just like what a, what a sort of acting triumph to be able to like distinguish those two characters in such like subtle ways, like the way that she stands and like how expressive Becca's face is and, in contrast to Ali and like her physicality was so different. Like just the, like the craft of that is like so amazing to me. Yeah, for sure. That's, just, that's how you, she was ending the season, you know? So it yeah. had to be, yeah. it, was, it was that good. Yes. Yes. I would also like to give a, a sort of slot 11 shout out to Sinclair because. Oh yeah. I adore Sinclair. And oh I feel God, like I love Sinclair. Who doesn't? Yeah. Uh, Alessandro Piani and like I've, um, uh, he's, he's just one of those guys in Vancouver that you constantly run into. I have been lucky enough to, yeah. and he's one of those people that, you know, when you run into him, life is going okay. Cause uh, he's just yeah. a yeah. guy uh-huh. that the way he lives his life and the way he carries himself around people. And also the way he acts is just, uh, he's a special dude. Yeah. He's just like, even as Sinclair, he's just like such a comforting, That's yeah. just a, you know, that's like, he's just a comforting guy to be around yeah. and he makes like, everything's cool. He's yeah. a good, good, great guy. Yeah. Yeah. R.I.P. Sinclair. Number 13. R.I.P. Sinclair. R.I.P. Sinclair. I'm getting emotional. <laughs> um, from Cabby Shipper 100 at Cabby Shipper 100. What moment on the 100 of all four seasons made you scream the most? Oh, I can answer this one um, because I, I have relived it watching other people watch the show and it never ceases to um, have the same effect is the f- I think the most freaked out I, I was when I first started watching the show was um, Raven blowing up the bridge. I was oh, like, yeah. I was a thousand percent convinced. I was like, she's not going to make it. She's not going to make it. And then you have like the drums and you like see the grounders coming through. the. I mean, like just the tension of that moment. It's like, it's just fucking amazing television. But like, so I watch it and I had that kind of visceral panic. And then um, I, I, my youngest brother and my older sister, I both tried to get them to watch the hundred and, and, um, they've only both gotten as far as season one, but I, but getting to watch my extremely like, um, easily frightened sister watching that scene. And she's like hiding inside this Afghan and she's like, Oh my God. 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 And she's like, but she's not, but how is she? And the thing's not working. What is she going to do? Oh my God. Can't, and they look freaking out. And I was like, I was on the one hand, I was like half laughing at her and half also like, yes, that's the only reaction to this scene. <laughs> so that would be it for me for sure. Um, yeah, I don't, this is tough because it's sort of like, okay, but which kind of screaming? Because there's like a bunch of different that's moments that's that all would have like very, very different kinds of screaming going, uh, going on. I think, um, but I think I still have to give it to Wells dying because that was the time. Yeah. Like, right. you know, it was like three episodes and I was sort of like, I felt, I was like starting to kind of relax a little bit. Like, okay, I know. And then that happens. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is a totally different show. Oh my God, oh my God. Like, I think, I think yeah. I still have to give that. That's like, that's like the, the, like, 
the er moment. That was like the original, the original scream of the series. I'm just going to have to still give it to that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Although the reveal, That's a good of, one. The, the reveal of the whole inside uh, Mount Weather at the end of season one also was a big moment. Oh, of, that's like, a good one too. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Like, blew my mind. Yeah, yeah. I that that I'm glad that the Wells moment there always comes back to Wells. Always comes back to Wells. Oh, Everything comes back to Wells. Yeah. He's he's like 1985 in Back to the Future. You know. <laughs> <laughs> he is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Somehow, always, I that, get that, that reference now. The moment, yes. The moment in time. That just it, it changes everything. It's also it could be 1955, which is another flux point when yes. uh, the almanac, etc. Also when the, the uh, enchantment under the sea dance was. But we'll talk about another. <laughs> From Julia, number 14 at J G E R V S. Hi Claire and Aaron. I'm a huge fan of the podcast and love listening to you guys talk about the show. I have two questions: one show related and one personal. The first one is: What season so far is your favorite of the hundred and why? And the second one is if. Each of you had an opportunity to take an all-expense-paid vacation. Where would you go and why? Thanks for thanks, and can't wait for season five podcast. Uh, favorite season. Season uh, why? And why? Yeah. Um, I think I'm gonna say season two. Okay. Um, and I think. Why? Uh, I I think. I think it's the best season. So, I mean, I think season two, I think is like, um, well, it's the first season that I watched live. So that might also be why I like, I binged the first season and a half and then I started watching live after the, after the like mid season break in season two. And so like, that was the first season when I was like watching week to week, you know, and I was like, really, but I just remember, I remember like, so it was built up for you. Yeah, it was built up. And I remember like, I just remember, I have like these vivid memories of the, of every single week, just being like absolutely riveted, you know, every second. And like, just like, I mean, you know, I was wrecked for like, I was emotionally wrecked for like two straight days after the finale. I was like <laughs> inconsolable. I was so and so, like, I, I think just there's the experience of that. Um, I'm always going to have to give it to season two. Oh. I, um, oh, that's hard. I, I, I really like season two, too. I, I have a, um, I feel like for me, I might have to give it to season one. Um, mm-hmm. Partly because I, uh, I feel like the, in some ways to me, it feels like narratively the cleanest, like there's, there's one story, there's one thing happening, which is like, you know, these two groups of people trying to converge, like Mm -hmm. how do we, you know, everyone on the ark trying to get down, everyone on the earth trying to like survive long enough to, you know, reconnect. And, um, and so I think just having that one, like, um, what, what seems like a very simple problem that becomes increasingly complicated by everybody's personalities and all these other sort of conflicts coming in, um, I just thought it was like really great storytelling. I do think, I mean, and I, I don't feel bad saying this because even Jason admits it, like that it takes a couple episodes to get off the ground. Um, so it, so I, I, I don't. Say that watch the show, make sure you get past the first three episodes. Cause yeah, 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 mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, and I, then that's just typical of, I think all TV shows, but, um, so it isn't like every single episode in season one is equally like my favorite episode. Um, but I feel like just the 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 structure of it and the propulsion of it, and also just like um, 
how quickly I got pulled into being like so emotionally attached to all of those characters and like, and, and not kind of knowing how things were going to play out. I thought was really, um, uh, yeah, that was just sort of, I think just because that was one that, that really hooked me. Like I really was hooked that early and I was like, I love all of these people and I love every single piece of backstory about them. And I'm surprised at like every twist and turn. And, um, and I also loved like, you know, that was our only, like the arc and the earth being like the kind of, you know, most of the shows have like, our seasons have like two worlds or three worlds where the story is happening. And I really liked the kind of the arc and ground split and all of those really great Clark Abbey parallels. So yeah, I think I have to go see one. Although awesome. there, there's great stuff in all of them. Yeah, no, um, I hear you. Because yeah. you, who were you emotionally attached to? I mean, I think that's such a personal experience, which one you like the best because yeah. it depends on yeah. you know, what's going on and, and who you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah the best um so far because i just love watching the characters grow from where they we've learned them already and it was mm-hmm. a thing right like in star trek and all this stuff you either have a villain or a thing coming at you and i mm-hmm. love thing because then allows allows you to see the character's reaction to it it becomes like a character piece for a whole season yeah exactly yeah, yeah. although i'm i'm ready for season five to be my new favorite because i'm already obsessed with the Elegious mining people and everything that we know about them, which is so little right now, but I'm just so ready to like, I'm ready to love them. Yes. <laughs> Claire, we've been ready to love Dioza since yes. the first hint that she even existed. Yes. <laughs> no comment. You may or may not love Dioza. <laughs> Claire will find a way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love it. Love finds a way, Sachin. Love finds a way. Love finds a way. Life oh, and finds a way. Oh, and, and part two. Part two, vacation. All expense vacation, where would you go and why? By the way, there is a deer like 10 feet outside of my window grazing. <laughs> I just looked outside and I was like, the leaves are moving. It, oh, it's a deer. Headed? Huh? Is it two-headed? It is not two-headed. <laughs> Fortunately, it only has one face. So... Aww. Well, I mean, I think that's good for our world. We're safe. Probably, yeah. Yes, I would. I would. That was a that. good. That was a good scream moment too, by the way. Oh yes, um, yeah. Not to be overlooked. I would say all expense pay vacation. Um, I when I was in college, I studied abroad for a semester in Galway, Ireland, and I loved it more than any other city I've ever been to in my whole entire life before or since. Um, and uh, and I've always wanted to go back there and. and and sort of, it's a great place to like spend a meaningfully long amount of time where you can really like kind of immerse yourself in the city. It's, um, Dublin's really cool too, but Dublin is like the East coast of Ireland, um, which is like much more urban and, you know, closer to the UK. And so a lot of it is kind of like generic European big city and Galway is on the West coast where everything is like deeply Irish. Like this, all the street signs are in English and Irish and, um, and it's, you know, it's much more sort of, I think, connected to that side of its culture and in beautiful and right on the coast and um, and really diverse. Like they they have a um, like a really large um, like uh, Indian and Pakistani and Asian population. So there was like, you know, like small family run, you know, businesses like that was the first place I ever had like Korean food, you know, and um an international film festival. So it was sort of like big enough to have all kinds of cultural things going on, but small enough that like little old ladies like get their bread at the bakery and their cheese at the cheese shop and their vegetables at the green grocer and everyone knows their name. So this is a perfect kind of rhythm. Um, so that would be my favorite. I would love to go there for like a month and just like stay in a little cottage and walk around and take pictures. 
Um, I would say, so my husband has never been overseas. He's been out of the country. He's been to Canada. Um, but he's never been like, you know, overseas to Europe or whatever. So I would, I would take him wherever he wanted to go overseas. And I think it would probably either be France or Japan. Um, which I would love to go to Japan, except for I'm afraid of uh, centipedes, and I hear they have giant centipedes, so that makes me. <laughs> but I would go to Japan with him if he wanted to go to Japan, and we could go see New Japan wrestling. And yeah. does he like New Japan? Oh yes. Oh, he is a huge wrestling nerd. Yeah. Oh my god! Yes. I just bought uh, I just bought a Kenny Omega. I wore Kenny Omega socks to a cherry basketball game I played in yesterday, and oh, I yeah. bought a Cody today nice so. <laughs> um yes also you guys, we're gonna you guys, one of these days we're gonna have to hook you guys up because you'll have so much to talk i mean he just he is like the biggest wrestling nerd he for and like, huh we're gonna move to the next convention i will yes. yes i'll tell him you have to come to the next convention so you guys can sit down and talk about I mean, he has, like, a podcast that he listens to. He has a wrestling podcast he listens to. It's, like, weekly, and it's, like, or maybe bi-weekly. I don't know. But it's, like, six hours long, and he was, listens to it. Yeah, Jared, him and Jared get along really well, too. Jared is, oh, like, yeah. Jared taught me about New Japan Wrestling. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Jared, the guy. Yes. I, oh, I, my God. Yeah. I we, mean, we got to make this happen. Yep. Um, Done. We'll, it'll, be a great, it'll be a great meeting. Yes. And you guys can just, like, nerd out about... As, as we nerd out, we will also nerd out. It'll be, like, the it'll be the nerdiest group of people you'll ever hear. Yes. Nerdception. Yeah. <laughs> Nerdception. Yes. And, and while we finish this first half of the second anniversary Metastation podcast, um, I will leave you with this. This, uh, it's, it's a question maybe about Tyra Banks is, uh, America's next top model. It's just a quick joke. Um, what is your favorite makeup? Oh, uh, I don't, I don't know if I have a favorite. <laughs> I don't really wear a lot of makeup. Well, they are Adams because they make up everything. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we have to work that in there somewhere. That's perfect. Yes, that is perfect. If there was ever a That's lull a- in the conversation, I was sitting there thinking about a chemistry, a, a science. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Rabbit, I told you, I can't let it go. That's right. I love Roger I'm Rabbit. A- good. I'm glad. Yes. All right, ladies, All that right. was fantastic. That was a good first half. I can't wait for the second half. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much. For taking My pleasure, y'all. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye, Sachin.